and you come um, that's us live now we've enough members there and I can hear you okay so you're good to go okay and we have uh, Preta and Co on or Bridget and Co online as well yeah. okay and we are we are in broadcasting yep Keith, we speak. are yep thank you Okay, uh, members, Majin Moya, Gustafajarov, good morning and welcome to you all to our meeting today. Um, and I now declare the meeting open to the public online. I'd like to welcome all of our members who are participating today by video conferencing. And I would like to remind members about the protocols regarding the use of electronic devices. So, uh, members, we have received no apologies into the office pre the meeting. Have members any other apologies to give? No, thank you. Um, chairpersons, business members, two items there to draw to your attention. First of all, I, uh, I attended a Future Minds uh, meeting yesterday, public meeting about mental health and young people here in the north. And it was around advancing the research priorities for health. Um, a very interesting session, I have to say, particularly from the committee point of view in relation to the, um, the, the cross-cutting observations that we have heard in committee here ourselves from young people around the need for them not only to be heard but for what they're saying to be acted upon and a very strong theme emerging from young people in particular that they need and they want the help to be available when the crisis exists um, and in a place of their choosing and a place that they're comfortable with there are there are you know issues around confidentiality and privacy for some people um, issues of accessing in school or in youth clubs and things like that. But I thought it was a very good session in terms of kind of building upon the work that we have already done with young people and also in terms of the uh, the, the confirmation that, that a lot of the messages that we're hearing are, continue to be raised by young people and the need for us to, uh, to, to continue to focus on that. So um, the other issue that I wanted to flag to members was that myself and the clerk did a meeting with the Pharmaceutical Society um, with some issues that they are raising of concern and they are going to forward uh, papers to the committee uh, for further discussion with, with committee um, on the on front of that meeting. So moving on then, members, to draft minutes, I refer you to the draft minutes of the meeting of the 27th of May, which are at tab 3.1 of your pack. Are members content with the minutes? Yeah, members content, thank you. And there are no matters arising from the minutes there, members. So our first uh, substantive briefing this morning, members, is the departmental briefing on June monitoring. Um, item five there, so we have a briefing from department officials on the June monitoring round. I refer members to the departmental paper at tab 5.1 of your pack. And I now would like to welcome by video link, firstly, Miss Bridget Worth, Director of Finance. Can you hear us okay, Bridget? Yes, good morning, Colin. Good morning, um, and you're very welcome. We're also joined by Preta Miller, Director of Investment. Preta, are you able to hear us okay? Wasn't just able to hear you there, Preta. I'm not sure, maybe you were still on mute. Okay, so we'll, we'll hopefully that will be okay when we come to the more substantive piece, but I can see you there and, and I think you're clearly hearing us okay, Preetam. So for now, we'll, we'll work with that and hopefully when you're brought into the spotlight, uh, it'll, the sound will be okay. 
We are also again joined by Miss Kira Dolan, who is Director of Transformation. Kira, are you able to hear us okay? I am, Chair. Can you hear me okay? Yep, hearing you there, Kira. Thank you. And finally, in terms of our officials this morning, Miss Annette Palmer, who is Head of the Financial Management Unit. Uh, good morning, Annette, and can you hear us okay? Yes, Chair. Thank you. Okay, um, listen, thank you all for attending committee this morning and I'll go ahead without further ado and ask you, uh, Bridget, to go ahead with uh, outline how you're going to handle the briefing and then we'll go into questions and answers as usual. So back to yourself, Bridget. Okay, th thanks very much, Chair. Um, so I'll start by making some opening remarks in relation to the revenue budget and I'll then hand over to Preeta, who will hopefully at that stage be able to talk you through the capital position. Um, Kira and Annette, as you said, are, are with me um, really to support in the questioning, so they won't be making any opening remarks this morning. Um, so moving on then to the paper, the revenue section of the paper starts by giving you a summary of the context in which we're considering the June monitoring position. And this will be familiar to you from the previous briefings you've had on the 21-22 budget. So if you look at table one, you'll see that we have had the £20 million for safe staffing and £50 million additional COVID funding confirmed as part of the post-budget process. So that's now in our budget. Um, we still have further allocations, though, to be confirmed in relation to AFC pay, um, former confidence and supply funding for mental health and severe deprivation and NDNA transformation. Uh, but we are continuing to be assured by DOF that these will be processed as part of June monitoring. So we're continuing to plan on the basis that that will happen. Um, so turning then to some of the substance of the paper um, in relation to COVID-19, in order to ensure the early allocation of COVID-19 funding, DOF led an exercise seeking additional bids in May. So you'll see in the paper a list of the bids we submitted as part of that exercise, and these have now all been confirmed as successful. Um, one of a number of financial challenges that the department faces this year, as we did last year, is the uncertainty around the amount of funding needed to address COVID-19 issues. So in a number of cases, these bids represent the early estimates of potential spending in areas that still need further discussion and agreement around the level of need. Um, and other bids represent emerging policy areas where demand is uncertain. And so at this stage, it's only been possible to include costs for the early stages of development. And obviously, then there's still the ongoing uncertainty around the level of additional spending required in the wider system. And we're continuing to keep um, the position under review. And as I've highlighted in the paper, we will liaise with DOF as necessary to highlight any urgent emerging resource requirements. Turning then to June monitoring, you'll see a list of the bids we plan to submit to DOF for consideration as part of that process. Um, in considering these bids, we've had to bear in mind that any funding we receive as part of June monitoring is non-recurrent. Um, and you'll be very well aware from previous briefings that the level of non-recurrent funding that's currently recovering recurrent activity in health is already, already at a level where we require an increase in our budget of at least £400 million in 22-23 just to fund existing expenditure. So in that context, we've had to limit our in-year request to inescapable pressures and to activity that can be funded on a non-recurrent basis. 
Um, and this obviously places a significant limitation on the level of ambition we can show here. And, and that doesn't really sit very well with the reported pressures in our health system. Um, and I, I do expect that to be a recurring theme throughout my responses to your, your questions this morning. Um, we, we also continue to work closely with the HSCB and the wider HSC to clarify any further support required in relation to their underlying position, as we do recognise that the delivery of savings targets has been difficult during the pandemic. Um, and, but given the uncertainty surrounding levels of activity as a result of COVID-19, we, we expect to have a more accurate position of, of this at the October monitoring round. Um, so I'll now hand you over to Preeta, who, who hopefully can make herself heard on the capital position. Um, can you hear me now? Yes, hearing you oh, okay thank there, Preeta. goodness. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> I, did, I did have to dial back in there, but at least that's worked. Great. Well, thank you, Bridget. Um, well, as you will be aware from a previous submission to you in April, the department's opening allocation is 326.5 million, and that includes a specific allocation for COVID funding of 3.6 million. Whilst this is welcome, I'd like to highlight to the committee that it falls far short of the long-term investment plans that have been announced across the health estate in England and by the Scottish National Party in its manifesto for Scotland. So across England, you 40 hospitals will be built by 2030 as part of a 3.7 billion package of investment. This is accompanied by a multi-year capital funding settlement for their health infrastructure plan. And this is really key for the effective management of any investment programme, given the lengthy lead time required to bring these projects to the point of construction. Our department would wish to make similar investments across all of our services, for example, in mental health or increasing emergency department and theatre capacity, our emergency services, diagnostic equipment and primary and community care facilities. But without these additional resources and the multi-year budget settlement, we're not in a position to make similar commitments to citizens of Northern Ireland. Following the budget outcome and advance of June monitoring, the Department of Finance did give us an opportunity to submit bids for additional COVID funding. As set out in your briefing paper, we submitted bids totaling 9 million for a range of COVID capital works and digital solutions. The finance minister confirmed these allocations on 20th of May, and the funding will be allocated to the department in, June, in the June monitoring settlement. Also set out in your briefing paper, we've been able to meet 12 million pounds of pressures identified by our health organisations from slippage in the capital programme, and we've submitted a bid to DOF for the remaining 11.5 million. We've notified um, of a reduced requirement in the maternity element of the Mother and Children's Flagship Project, and this is due to receipting of equipment shifting to the beginning of 2223. The Northern Ireland Fire and Rescue Service have also identified a reduced requirement of 1.4 million in the Learning and Development Centre flagship project, and this is due to delay in award of the construction contract. We're required to return this 3.4 million of ring fencing to DOF, but we have asked them if we could retain it to meet some of our other pressures that we've identified in the June monitoring round. We've also reported a reduced requirement of 1 million in the GovTech scheme, as the project is now not progressing. And as this was provided by um, Business Energy and Industry Strategy, they've asked for it to be returned to Treasury, and this will be actioned in the June monitoring round. As well as this, as in all monitoring rounds, we have a number of technical adjustments that we've processed um, in order to record our correct budget position on the system. And with that, Bridget, Kira, Annette, and I are happy to take any questions you may have. Thank you. 
Okay, thank you, Priva. Um, okay, Bridget, the first one from me goes back slightly to the uh, the resource bids that we heard about previously, and one in particular that I want to uh, drill into in some more detail is the um, the one in relation to the long term health effects of COVID nineteen. So long COVID, as it's as it's known uh, colloquially. I have previously raised questions with the department in relation to how many people have or are likely to um, develop long COVID, and um, there hasn't been any accurate accurate figures to date. So what figures are you basing the bid of £1 million on, and what is that designed to deliver? Okay, um, so early estimates have suggested that there are ongoing symptoms in 2 to 5% of those with COVID-19. But um, an ONS survey in December 2020 indicated that 22.1% of those symptomatic at five weeks and 9.8% and of those at 12 weeks. So um, the figures I have here are up to 12,000 in, in Northern Ireland. Um, and the funding we have here um, is, is designed to enable timely, effective and equitable arrangements for the assessment of people who continue to experience the long-term effects as a result of COVID. So um, we're looking at things like um, assessment services, like a one-stop shop for MDT, MDT assessment, um, so bespoke pulmonary re rehabilitation um, for patients with significant respiratory um, symptoms and um, strengthening psychological support and signposting access to self-management resources. So obviously we're in the early stages of developing that, but that's a flavour of the sorts of things that, that are being looked at. So, and that, that in itself is, is quite that, even that 12,000 estimate is quite a shocking figure in terms of additional pressure. Well, first of all, in terms of people suffering from the effects of long COVID um, personally, but also the impact that's going to have on, on the system. And I, 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 am, I, am I correct in taking from it that, that the bulk of that 1 million is around the assessment process? and that there will be further um, need for allocation of resources in terms of treatment and recuperation and, and support? Um, Colm, as I say, um, the work's really in, in a very early stage at the moment, so I, I don't have a breakdown of, of what the million, uh, the, how, how the £1 million might be allocated. I think that the further work needs to be done in this area, and as you say, um, obviously that there could be the identification of further funding requirements um, as that work concludes. And I suppose not only, I'm, I'm concerned that not only will there be a funding requirement, but that the, the staffing shortages, um, in, including those, uh, the, the, and clearly with, COVID, with long COVID, the allied health professionals become crucial. A, a number of the disciplines there, physiotherapy, um, SLT, uh, OT, obviously. Um, so do we have, do we have the staff resources in place to, look after the cure of those 12,000 and growing, or a minimum 12,000 and growing cohort of people with long COVID? Um, Colm, so first just to, just to uh, um, the figure I have is up to 12,000. So, okay. uh, um, you know, 
I don't, you know, I don't think we have an accurate assessment of the numbers. Um, but certainly um, there are other measures put forward as part of this COVID funding that would address some of those issues that you've described, for example, um, within the funding for nursing midwifery and allied health professionals, there's five million pounds to um, retain newly qualified um, AHPs um, for a period of six months following qualification, um, which is one of the ways that we're looking to address um, short-term workforce issues. Now, I'm not saying those are definitely going to be deployed in, in into long COVID um, areas, but I suppose it's just an example of one of the ways that we are attempting to use some short-term measures to boost um, our workforce needs. Okay, and, and picking up then on, on and, and I accept your clarification that it's up to 12,000, but from your point of view in terms of trying to budget and allocate the appropriate resource, is it not, is it not urgent that we would um, have accurate figures and what work is being done to, uh, to underpin those figures with accurate, with accurate um, assessment? So I don't I don't have information on exactly what work's being done. Um, yes, I mean we we obviously recognise that we would love to be in a position where we had accurate figures um, for all of our needs, but um, the work obviously does need to be done, and and no doubt is pr proceeding at pace given the urgency of of the need. Okay, okay. Well, we'll 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 clearly, I suppose, need to come back to that. So moving on then to to the June monitoring then the the substantive bids. Given where we are with waiting lists, I am, I have to say, extremely disappointed that there's not uh, more um, of a bid in for waiting lists to address waiting lists. The only, the only one I see is 1.5 million, which is, I suppose, a drop in the ocean in terms of the overall waiting list that we are dealing with at the minute. So 1.5 million for elective care activity um, in relation to assessments and treatments in general practice. And while that's welcome in itself, um, would there not be um, a, a need for, for much more resource to be targeted to try to start to cut into those increasing waiting lists, Bridget? Um, so I suppose this, I mean, first of all, it needs to be seen in the context of the, the 40 million um, that we allocated in the opening budget for elective care from our COVID rebuild funding. So there was an additional 40 million put in at the start of the year before we get to June monitoring. There's also around 7.2 million of that 50.5 of COVID funding bids that you see there that will contribute to waiting lists. So um, within the nursing and midwifery, there's 1.3 million pounds for orthopedic assessments. There's 2.6 million pounds in the cancer recovery around oncology and hematology. Uh, 1.8 million in the cancer recovery bid for diagnostic and imaging, which will contribute to meeting waiting lists in, in that area. And there's one and a half million of cardiology support, which will also contribute to, to meeting um, waiting lists. So um, there's, I suppose, 47.2 million pounds there before we get into the one and a half. Um, and we do continue to assess um, the need for funding in this area. So um, as we clarify um, whether there is anything else that we can do, and the minister has, has basically told all of us to leave no stone unturned in looking for ways that um, waiting lists can be addressed. So as that work continues, obviously, if there are further things that we believe can be done, we will be looking to seek additional funding in later monitoring rounds. 
Okay, okay. Um, and you had in an earlier briefing we had touched upon alternative workforce, and and I know that some of the restrictions are around. So uh, we had looked at alternative workforce around counselling, around uh, other other areas that were identified as additional um, expertise and skills that could be brought in to assist GPs or assist other other health pressures. Um, I don't see any bids in here in terms of of, of uh, harnessing that alternative workforce. Can you explain why that is, Bridget? Um, so I suppose I'm, are you talking in terms of things like allied health professionals? Because as I say, there is a bid there in terms of the nursing um, midwifery and allied health professionals for allied health professionals to look at um, assessing people who are on waiting lists who maybe can be treated in alternative ways um, and and thereby really uh, relieve pressure on waiting lists there's a bid in in the covid funding for I think it's around about 1.3 million of that um, nursing midwifery and allied health professional support um, specifically to look at interventions in that way w was that the kind of thing that you were meaning well no but that that that's 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 useful as well but I was speaking to there was a specific reference to um in, pre in previous workforce planning to alternative workforce around things like counseling so um to me to my mind um short of the full rollout of multidisciplinary teams into into primary care which is badly overdue and and needs to be a priority. In the meantime, the committee has heard evidence that there are people out there, such as counsellors, trained, qualified counsellors, who could potentially, I believe, uh, take off some of the pressure off GPs by allocating even on a short-term basis uh, to try to take off some of that pressure. So are there any are there any alternative workforce um, assistance being looked at in terms of budgeting? And I don't see it in this in this monitoring round. So, um, no, I haven't received a bid for any additional funding in that respect. Um, but that doesn't mean, I suppose, that it's not um, under consideration. Okay. Um, and I think I think the, what I'm trying to, I suppose, get across here is the urgency of how much pressure the system is under. And there may be um, solutions that are, that are readily, uh, some, not, 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 not a magic solution, but there may be some elements of support that could be got in, and I think those need to be need to be prioritised. So, just a final quick one from me, and before I go to members, in relation to the ten point seven million for EU related pressures, exit pressures, um, including medicine price rates, logistics, and other resource requirements. Do you know how much of that ten point seven million has been allocated for the dual registration of health professionals? In terms of the the new need for for many professions to have dual registration, should they be working on either side of the border? I don't have that figure, and um, it's it's not part of this ten point seven million of a bid. But um, I, I I am aware that there was an assessment of around about fifty three thousand pounds at a point in time, Colin. But I wouldn't be confident of that number being complete okay 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 listen i will move on i will move on then to uh, other members questions so i'm going to go first of all to paula bradshaw then i have carol nikhilin or leah flynn and jerry carol indicating at this point so go ahead paula please um, good morning, panel. Thanks very much for the presentation this morning. My first question is in relation to the Northern Ireland Ambulance Service. We saw last night again there was huge pressures outside 
and inside our emergency and urgent care centres. So I'm just wondering um, if any additional funding has been allocated. We know from the Northern Ireland Ambulance Service who came to us in December last year that they had put a bid in for 30 million um, to um, put up their staff numbers and train their staff. So I'm just wondering what's happening with that. Thank you. Okay, um, so there has been allocations made for um, NIAS training um, as part of our, budget, uh, our budgeting process. Um, in terms of the additional £30 million, which I think is for their clinical response model, um, my understanding is that that would need to be rolled out over a number of years. And I know the business case for that is still under development. So there isn't any funding included in our um, June monitoring bids for that. Um, in terms of the ED waiting time pressures, um, th there is work ongoing in the department in terms of the, the No More Silos um, initiative, which is our, our response to some of those issues in urgent and em emergency care and um, funding, as, as I think you will, will know from, was allocated in, in the opening budget for, for that work. Okay, but so nothing additional has come forward there in terms of requests um, under June monitoring? Not at this time. I mean, I would just note again, um, you know, we did have to restrict our June monitoring bids to measures that are non-recurrent in nature because of those building pressures. So, you know, I'm sure if we had access to recurrent funding at June monitoring, there would be a lot more bids that we would be able to put forward. Um, but, you know, as, as you know, um, things like staffing and training, we can't start them without the promise of money next year. OK, thank you. Um, my, my second question is probably a wee bit more specialised, but I, I'm very concerned about the growing waiting lists in relation to accessing the regional gender identity service up in the Brackenburn Clinic. Um, I think in December, the waiting list was three years, 10 months. I think it's now gone up to over four years and um, that people are waiting for their first appointment. So I'm just wondering, has a bid come in um, to try and ease the pressures on that? And in the general budget, what uh, additional funding has been allocated for this year going forward? Thank you. Uh, and, and Paula, I, many apologies. I, I don't have that information. I, I don't have a bid um, specifically for that particular area. Um, and I don't have the information on, on that level of detail as to what's what's allocated in the opening budget, but that's something I could certainly provide. Okay, no, I really appreciate that. And I wonder if you could indicate not just what's been allocated this year, but what was allocated in the previous couple of years, just to see, because the pressures have been mounting there and um, it, it has caused great anxiety to those people who are waiting on less note. Um, not least due to the pandemic um, lockdown. So thanks, I would really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Paula. And going then to Carol Nikhilin, uh, Lana Ray, Carol. And for Melgit Keverley, thank you very much to the panel um, for your presentation this morning. Um, Bridget, I was, so I've seen the allocations that were made in relation to safe staff and which is 20 million. And then we have a further bid in under point seven for nursing midwifery and allied health professionals. Um, so, you know, what is the safe staffing uh, budget? What exactly is it going to do? And then does that include uh, the covering the cost of agency staff as well? If you could answer that, uh, that's my first question. My second question is I welcome the bid for adult 
social care, the additional costs, but uh, were there bids made in relation to children's social care? Um, because I'm aware of even just some of the, the challenges that we have in Belfast, so I'm just interested in that. And then my final question is, in relation to the COVID um, status certification, um, if you could just explain, you know, a bit more detail on that, um, because it's it, it reads like a COVID passport. So I just wanted to know what, what, what exactly that's for and what it's to do. Thank you, Chair. Okay. Um, so starting with safe staffing then, um, Proposals are, are, are being developed on that. Um, it will be prioritised towards a range of nursing specialities to include mental health, learning disability, district nursing, theatre and critical care nursing and midwifery. midwifery. So that, that there are plans underway for what that will be spent on. It is primarily targeted at additional staffing. So um, that that is primarily what that will be spent on. And some of it will pay for some of the additional staffing that was put in place last year with the five million pounds we had for safe staffing last year. So some of it will go towards ensuring we have a full year's worth of funding for th those staff that were put on, on the ground partway through the year last year. In Sorry, terms of... Sorry, Bridget, is that for health and social care staff or other agency staff? Yes, yeah, so it, it is intended to, to, to enable us to increase our permanent workforce, yes. Um, um, then the COVID um, identity is, is essentially um, a vaccine. It is essentially us um, developing our um, vaccine passport system. Um, it's in the early stages of planning, but it will enable us to support the the, um, the implementation of that COVID status certification, which is more commonly known as a vaccine passport. So they will um, individuals will be able to access and share evidence relating to their COVID free status, either through having had um, immunisation or through testing data. So the aim in the first instance of that is to be able to support um, Northern Ireland citizens in um, undertaking international travel as restrictions are eased. Um, there are no, there are no firm plans to use it for anything else at this stage. At this stage, yes. So, I mean, uh, Bridget, but you know that um, I, I certainly would welcome a bit more detail on that and a bit more reassurance on that because uh, we need to make sure that secondary use of data isn't um, sold on or passed on. Um, so it needs to, I, I would really ask that that's a bit more definitive rather than at this stage, if you don't mind. Yeah, and I suppose when I say at this stage, the sorts of things I suppose we're looking at being contemplated are the use of it in more in domestic settings. So, but that would be a policy matter for the executive to decide if it were to be, you know, if they want it to be used more widely. Um, I'm not expecting and there hasn't been any discussion that I'm aware of of the data being used for other purposes. And you had a third point that I'm apologies I've forgotten. Sorry Bridget, I welcome the budget for the additional money for adult social care but could, could you give me a rundown on 
any additional allocations to children's uh, social care as well, given the pressures that they're under? Okay, so the, there are a few um, areas that are targeted towards that. Um, certainly within the mental health allocation, uh, or sorry, the, yeah, the mental health COVID allocation, um, there's additional funding in there for um, to support um, CALMS um, to alleviate current pressures there, particularly in relation to eating disorder services. Um, but there isn't a specific um, bid for um, ch children's social care in the way that I have the one for adult social care. And sorry, Charles, it's just my last point. So in relation to um, February of this year and again in April, in February, the department brought forward a high level impact assessment. And within that, there were major concerns that the department identified themselves. I asked this question again in April when the draft budget was brought forward. What are the department doing in terms of addressing those inequalities that you identified yourselves? And certainly within that, um, disabilities and children in particular um, are vulnerable, any age category along with older people. So in your document in point 10, you said no inequalities have been identified. I would like to see uh, further work on that. And I just want to make the point um, because uh, I just think that the department has brought forward its own facts and then ignored its own statistics. So I just want to make that point. Thank you, Chair. Thank you. Thank you, Carl. And uh, going then to Orlea. Go ahead, Orlea, please. Um, Colm, maybe just to, to follow on quickly from the, the last point that Carl had made. Um, it was actually one of my questions that I wanted to ask the the panel and thanks for coming today um, to the committee today and, and giving us a briefing. Um, but in the we received correspondence after our last briefing with the officials and the question was raised around how the department um, monitors, you know, the health inequalities and, and how they how they assess and, and deal with that. And I know in the in the response that we got back, um, yes, it says that so the, the health, there's the health and social care inequalities monitoring system and that 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 system that group informs various strategies like the program for government and the making life better and i'm just wondering does does that that group have any input um bridget or the team whenever user user you know drafting or finalizing the budgets have they any input at that stage so we do ask um, that all the bids that are put forward provide an indication of um, any equality impacts they've had um, and that they're summarised in the bid documentation that comes forward. So, I mean, I suppose my comment in the paper to yourselves this morning that no inequalities, uh, sorry, no adverse impacts have been identified, that is in relation to the bids specifically. I mean, obviously we recognise that there are still broader health inequalities across the system, but um, yeah, so so we have assured ourselves in these bids coming forward that, that there aren't any adverse impacts or, on equality uh, as part of that. Um, and that information on inequality impacts will then be included in our bids to DOF um, to enable that to be taken into account in their recommendations to the executive. Okay, that's thanks. Thanks for that, Bridget. Um, and then just to move on to um, so thank you for a note that we got the detail as well from the last time I was asking for the breakdown around the the three point five million and the two million from the mental health task and finish group and we got 
got all that breakdown and that was really useful. So thank you very much for that. And I'm just wondering, similar to that, um, Bridget, see the 11.7 for mental health and severe deprivation. I don't know if you have the detail of, you know, what 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 that that amount of money will be spent on if you don't have it today. Um, it would be great to get to get that in writing. And I know that you had mentioned then so the, the COVID allocation, the, there's a proportion of that that will be going towards mental health. So the stuff around the comms and the eating disorders. So I'm just wondering, would the committee be able to get that um, in writing from yourselves or? Yeah, I mean, we can provide some writing. I do have it with me. If 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 we have time, I can I can um, give you those breakdowns um, now, if, if that would be useful. What, do, do you know what, Bridget? It's actually um, and uh, your your verbal um, briefings are really useful. But whenever we get it in in writing, I I can actually unpick it a wee bit more if that's okay. If that's not too much of a no, that's okay. A hassle. Thank you. And then just my my final question is around. So I could see in your in the paper this might be one more for Prida, um, mm -hmm. in terms of the the capital budget that uh, one million pound has been um allocated for uh, the rehab services. So at the minute it was saying in the paper that there is no commissioned um, rehabilitation services and obviously we're lagging behind significantly in comparison to other jurisdictions. Um, but that a site has now been identified for a first phase pilot, um, which involves converting an existing facility to meet the service needs. So I'm just wondering, Preda, um, mm -hmm. Have you any more detail on where, where that site is and what that actual one million pound, what that means um, in, in practice for, for setting up that sort of arrangement? And then just finally, finally, sorry, um, I know that in the correspondence that we got back to the committee as well the last time around, the the your team was working out the doing that stress test around the actual percentage of the overall health budget that's been spent on mental health. Um, I know that you were saying, well, a couple of weeks ago when we got that letter back, um, that piece of work still wasn't complete. And I'm just wondering if you have any sense of that today. Thank you very much. Okay, so um, if I take the rehab question, I don't know, Bridget, if you're happy to take the mental health percentage question. Great. Okay, so... Earlier, the rehab, um, it's basically a bid for £1 million. Um, the Western Trust, as you say, has identified a potential site for that first phase pilot. So it's at Cedar House and it's a building on the Grancher site in Londonderry. And it can, after refurbishment, host 10 rehabilitation patients. The refurbishment would involve converting the existing multi-bed base style unit to single ensuite bedrooms. It would be a full-scale renovation to ensure that the fabric of the building meets the service needs. The expected outcomes then from that would be better long-term prospects of those with severe mental illness that are often classed as treatment resistant with better um, quality of life for them, longer life expectancy and better integration in society. It's also expected that it will lead to reduction in pressures on inpatient acute mental health services. That is that sufficient, Orlea? That, that's perfect, Prita. Thanks very yeah. much for that detail. Great. Okay, um, and then Olia, just to pick up a point on mental health, um, we've got some early indicative figures on the likely allocations um, for mental health as a percentage of the overall um, allocation that goes out as part of the programmes of care. Um, 
that is around about the it's it's it's, it's 350 million and that's about seven percent of the it's around about five billion of, of our budget that goes out through programs of care um I would say that is it is important to note that that is an indi initial indication and it may be subject to change because the HSCB and PHA is still engaging with trusts to to refine the detail of, of planned investment across each programme of care. Um, and so we're waiting really, I suppose, for that work to conclude before we would come back to you formally on that. That's fair enough, Bridget. Thanks very much. I appreciate that. Thank you, Arlea and uh, panel. And going then to Jerry Carroll. Gorai, Lesh Kest. Jerry, let it hold. Thanks, panel. Um, a couple of quick questions. Uh, probably the first one for yourself, Bridget. Um, how many bids in total were made by the department uh, for June monitoring, and how many were not uh, accepted or allocated? Okay, so um, we have not submitted our June monitoring to DOF as yet. So the bids you see there, the, there are six, I think, there on the revenue side in terms of proposed bids, but they're, they're due to be submitted tomorrow and we will probably find out the outcome towards the end of June. Okay, so just the extra allocation isn't June monitoring, there's just been extra money just found, so to speak. That's where the, the allocations have been met. Yes, yeah, so the allocations that have been met as part of that May exercise were mm -hmm. in relation to COVID funding. So that, that was not June monitoring as such. It was a, a sort of a, an early exercise around COVID specifically. Um, I suppose just DOF were keen to make sure that that funding was allocated as soon as possible and didn't want to leave it until the June monitoring round. Okay, thanks. Uh, and can you confirm that, um, I mean, through the either June monitoring or... or the May process, for want of a better uh, phraseology, um, has there been any indication of uh, uh, more money being set aside for um, pay? I know there's the, the AFC, but that's kind of uh, pre-COVID pay. Uh, is there any indica indication that there'll be more than money set aside for uh, effectively 1% for uh, health and social care stuff? Um, so at the moment, we're still waiting for the um, findings of the various review bodies who make recommendations on pay. Um, and um, obviously, we don't want to preempt what their recommendations might be. Um, so until until those recommendations come out, um, we, we haven't made any representations for additional funding at this stage. Okay, uh, because just for talk's sake, the pay review body, I think, is due to make a decision fairly soon. For talk's sake, if they said 15% for health staff, but if the department hasn't set aside uh, money for 15%, then there's obviously a gap there and there's an issue, obviously. Yeah, so I think that there's probably two issues in that. Um, the first one would be that if there was, for example, a 15% pay rise, I would expect that would lead to additional allocations being made to English departments to enable them to fund that. So we would then get in Northern Ireland the Barnet consequentials of that funding. And I would hope, but obviously it's the discretion of the executive, um, but the, the, you know that additional Barnet money would be available to the executive to increase pay. However, we would then have to recognise that we know that the Barnet consequentials of English pay is not sufficient to cover um, 
the pay uplift that across all of our AFC staff, it's largely because of the different ways that social care is funded in Northern Ireland compared to England. So there would be a gap were that to occur. Um, and that would then necessitate obviously additional discussion with DOF and, and with the executive as to how that gap uh, and whether that gap, I suppose, would be met. Okay, uh, and two, two final quick points there. Um, at the end of April, the minister, the health minister, said that uh, we'll need an extra £400 million just to stand still for health. So can you confirm that that hasn't been uh, awarded as of yet? Um, so that £400 million is um, in relation to the 22-23 funding gap mm-hmm. that will arise. So... Um, because we have a lot of non-recurrent funding in 21-22, that gap doesn't exist yet. But when we get to 22-23 and that non-recurrent funding is withdrawn from us um, and we go back to our baseline position, we would need another 400 million on top of that baseline then in 22-23 to enable us to continue to afford those services that have been non-recurrently funded in the 21-22 year. Okay, so I think that's a yes. Okay, and then finally, um, so so the money for the, the figure you quoted, I think was it uh, sixty-five or eighty-five million uh, extra for this year for for waiting list. Um, I, I mean, is that go, where is that going? Because from recollection, the the two highest areas for for people on waiting on uh, either um, consultations or or appointments or or, or treatment is ENT procedures, and I think it's uh, hip or associated. Uh, issues with with, with that. Uh, I mean, is this money going uh, to target those people in those areas, or is it a, a general increase in money that's going to the uh, independent sector? So um, it is planned to spend that money on prime. Well, sorry, that the forty million that I talked about that was set aside in the opening budget certainly um, was planned really primarily to be spent on using capacity in the independent sector, but that will be prioritised towards where we feel those the priorities are. Now, I don't have details with me of, of what what the um, what what our assessment would be of those priorities, but absolutely it will be targeted towards the areas we feel are, 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 you know, are most important rather than it being dictated by um, by the independent sector is my understanding. Yeah, just if we get detail on that, I think that would be useful for the committee and myself. Thanks, that's me. Okay, thank you, Jerry. And going then, I have Alan, then Jonathan, and then Cara. So go ahead, Alan, please. Uh, thank you, Chair. Uh, Bridget, uh, you quote that up to 12,000 people uh, may present with the long COVID symptoms. Is that actually recorded cases or is that uh, sort of predictive data? And within that 12,000, would there be a range of, of symptoms? Would it be those who would need uh, quite major intervention and, and those that maybe just uh, really rest at home? Uh, would be the only intervention. And in relation to bids, I know there's been some surprise, maybe disappointment that certain bids have not been made by the department, but are bids uh, constricted by your current staff and logistic capacity to actually spend the bids uh, if successful? So is it the case that uh, the department has to maybe be realistic? Uh, about the the bids that they actually do submit. Thank you. Okay, so um, 
Yes, in, ter in terms of the long COVID, those are very early projections and estimates based on statistics of people who are still experiencing symptoms uh, periods of time later. So, um, you know, until we do further work, we won't know, as you say, exactly what level of intervention is required. Um, so, so yes, that's that that all needs to be explored. And um, I suppose in, in terms of your second point, yes, you're quite right. Um, you know, some of the answers to our problems will not be solved by money alone. Um, some, you know, it, it is that long term strategy to attract people into the workforce, to train them. Um, and so there is only so much money we can spend when we, we don't have the staff um, available to us. Yes, certainly. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. And going then across to Jonathan. Go ahead, Jonathan, please. Hello, Chair. And uh, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, I hear you, Jonathan. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much, Alan, for, for your presentation this morning. I, I suppose uh, it can't be uh, overestimated or overstated the severe pressures that our health budgets are facing and will face into the future as we try to get uh, uh, vital services up and going again and also deal with the reform and tackle those waiting lists. So uh, I don't underestimate the challenge that we face and, and thank you to, for coming to the committee. Uh, the Chair asked an earlier question, and I think I maybe picked up on part of it, but I was losing connection. Uh, it was in relation to the $8 million for nursing, midwifery and allied health professionals pressure and how that's distributed. Is it related to staff costs? Okay, bear with me just one second. Um, so it, it's across a range of things. So there's around 5 million of it is to temporary employ newly qualified AHPs um, to fill vacancies. Um, there's 1.2 million of it is for AHPs in doing that orthopedic clinical assessment and treatment that I talked about in terms of helping to deal with waiting lists. Um, and then there's another nearly a million pounds for the coordination of AHP practice placements. And that's really just to make sure that during the COVID pandemic, um, our AHPs who are training are getting the level of experience that they need to be able to qualify at the end of it. And then there's a number of other smaller investments in that area as well. So it's a combination of staffing and other things. Okay, so thanks for that clarity. Uh, in relation to the mother and uh, children's flagship project, can you give some indication and detail as to the slippage on this project? And can you provide assurances that the vital upgrade and new capitals will be prioritised going forward? Yes, um, I can certainly take that question. So um, basically the slippage was because the handover of the, the buildings to be handed over to the Belfast Trust in February and March 22. And the slippage basically relates to the purchase of equipment. Um, because it's so close to the year end, it just means that they're not able to receipt you know, take receipt of the equipment until just into the new year. So that's basically what that slippage is. It's not it's not a slippage because something isn't happening or is materially delayed, if that's helpful. And sorry, was there a second part to your yeah, question no, I think I missed? Was that okay? No, no it was just, it, it, the, the second part, well, the first part was the reasons why the slippage had happened. And the second part is that it's being prioritized going forward. Oh, it's definitely, yes. It's, would be there that it, it didn't. It is. It is to be priority. It's a flagship project yeah, okay. and it will take priority in terms of funding. Yeah. 
Thank you. Okay, uh, and my sec, uh, my final question, Chair, is in relation to EU exit, and maybe one of the officials can answer this. So, to bid for the EU exit being the direct result of the impact of the protocol on historic GBNI supply chains for medicines and medical products. Okay, um, so you'll see we do have a bid. Um, the, the, the bid is primarily uh, a £10 million of that bid is in relation to pressures on pharmacy prices. It's not possible to provide an assessment of exactly why those price pressures have emerged. Um, it's it's potentially um, related to both COVID and EU exit, um, and it's principally because of of, of the uh, the impact on generic me medicines, which are largely manufactured in India and China and other Asian countries. So. There isn't an obvious mechanism to disentangle the impact of COVID and EU exit in terms of those price rises. And similarly, it, it's, pro, it's not abundantly clear what might be to do with the protocol. So, you know, it, we know that prices are going up. We know that COVID and EU exit are likely the driver of that, but it's not really possible to quantify the impact of either or the specific impact of the protocol. We will be trying to do what we can to model that to see if we can figure it out. But, um, you know, it's, it's unlikely that it will ever be, ever be possible to do it definitively. Okay, so can we have a breakdown of how funding will be spent? The ten million. Sorry, so it's 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 suppose it's 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 pharmaceutical. It is medicines. It's all on medicines, but it's general rises in prices in pharmaceuticals. So it's it's not sort of possible to say it's this one or it's that one. It's it's a general in inflationary pressure on 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 medicines. Okay, and, and finally there, and I think you alluded to this in part of your answer, but has a scoping exercise been undertaken, and maybe that is in, in future planning, with regards to further impacts once the 12-month derogation period has ended? Yes, so certainly there there is ongoing work being undertaken on that. Um, and I think Cathy Harrison is maybe coming to speak to you later this month um, and she would be, be able to provide um, much more detail on, on the work that is being undertaken in that area. Okay, thank you, Chair. Thank you, Pam. Thank you, Jonathan. And Chiara, go ahead, Chiara, please. Uh, Chair and thank you panel uh, this morning. Apologies I was slightly late due to an appointment so if I repeat members comments or questions um, please forgive me but always great to have you and we welcome your contributions uh, to the committee. Uh, I've seen there's 49 uh, million for NDNA uh, transformation. Can I ask does this include funding for an addiction centre of excellence, excellence uh, in the northwest? Um, okay so the, the NDNA funding has um, is is funding our existing transformation programs that were on the ground um, as at the 31st of March um, and the 49 million in itself isn't sufficient to cover all of that so um, we've needed to supplement that with funding um, from our COVID rebuild. I'm, I'm not sure um, if there's anything in particular for the project you mentioned. Um, I, I'm not sure. Okay, Kira, maybe you could um, yes, Cara, thanks for your question. Cara, not that I'm um, aware of it, I will double check that. But as Bridget said, the, um, we've, we've topped up the 49 million to 
88 million for existing transformation um, projects and those that were prioritised by um, policy leads. So it's it's not in, on my radar, but I'll double check that. That's lovely, Kira. Thank you. And thank you, Bridget. Um, next, I just have a question around, um, I know there's 11.7 million for mental health and severe deprivation. And I know you mightn't have to hand today that detailed breakdown, um, but I also seen the 1.4 million for mental health interventions. Can I ask if you'd have a, a more detail on that? That would be great. Um, yes, Cara and um, Olia actually had had asked for those breakdowns to be provided in writing. I do have them with me, but Olia said she she actually prefers to have it in writing. But I'm happy to go through that for you now, if you wish. Yeah, the 1.4 million. I think that would be be helpful. Thank you. Certainly. So um, the two main aspects of that are the innovation fund which is um, looks to fund it's it's for short term local revenue projects to improve outcomes for people with mental health. Um, and it, it was it was a great success um, in the mental health action plan during the pandemic. And it's expected that this funding um, will continue to help people in recovery from the pandemic and some of those who've suffered with the restrictions. Um, and then the other main aspect of it is to um, ease pressures in um, eating disorder services so it, it, it will increase um, capacity within CALMS to help alleviate some of those current pressures and then there are a number of other smaller um, areas um, linked to the mental health um, area like um, funding a mental health workforce review and evaluating some of our existing mental health strategies um, in order to inform um, progress, obviously, in that area going forward. That's great, Bridget. Thank you. And uh, mindful there is that real acute need for improved eating disorders um, and support. Uh, yes. Uh, lastly, finally, just uh, I welcome that there's 2.6 million going into the cancer recovery plan. Um, I'm mindful of the Northwest uh, Cancer Hub, and I'm just wondering, is any of this funding going towards exploring uh, treating ca cancer on a cross-border basis or exploring any opportunities in that way? So um, this funding really is to stabilise the existing services in oncology and haematology, um, you know, to deal with the pressures that they were experiencing um, both pre and during COVID-19. So um, it's not specifically to look at cross-border um, services, although, as you said, the, the Northwest Cancer Centre obviously is configured on a cross-border basis. That's great. Thank you, Bridget. Thank you, Kira. Okay, thank thank you, Kara. Um, and I just want to take the opportunity and a couple of quick ones because I'm conscious that there may be there may be things contained in there that 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 are not clear from from the headlines that have been used, and I want to pick up on some of the issues that the committee has been looking at, and indeed that that are of concern out there in the wider public. So, has there been any money bid for or set aside to address curers' support and the need to the need to provide additional support to curers? So I know there's ongoing policy work in this area. Um, the minister in 2020-2021 did establish a carers fund um, that could be, was open to um, organisations supporting carers to apply to. Um, but I think the direct support to carers, the, the policy space is quite challenging and I know that there's ongoing work in that area but I don't think they've got to the point where they've been able to bring forward a proposal. 
and we're, we're acutely aware of the uh, the removal of a lot of the daycare and respite services. Have there been any additional bids from the department to try to replace some of those badly needed services? Okay, so, so I don't think I have anything specific in that area, um, but I mean, the, there is a significant amount of funding has been allocated at the start of the year to deal with COVID response generally. So there's, um, I think overall, um, there was, and I'm just trying to add up some numbers in my head because um, I think we had 155 million for ongoing response services in the opening budget. And that's supplemented by um, 175 million um, that we're expecting to be able to use in relation to PPE. So there's a lot of funding there that um, is being administered by the HSCB that may very well, I don't have the detail of a uh, detailed breakdown of that, and it, it may very well be providing some of that support. Yeah, and I think I think people out there at the sharp end of all of this would uh, obviously welcome additional investment, but nobody's seeing it on the ground. These services are still not opening up, and and I do I do welcome the fact that everything that was bid for in the earlier round on the fifty point five million resource was was provided by Department of Finance. So I suppose it then becomes an issue of are the department ambitious enough, the Department of Health ambitious enough in terms of what they're what they're asking, creative enough in terms of core pressures. Um, the other one I want to move on to then is in relation to autism services. So how much has been bid for or set aside? for investing in autism services or to address the autism waiting lists, which are so uh, so extensive at present. And again, Chair, apologies, I don't have that detail with me um, today. Um, there isn't a specific bid um, in June monitoring or in that COVID funding, but as I say, the, there's significant funding there in baselines that I, I don't have a, a complete breakdown of with me today. Well, can you forward that, Bridget, please? Because it's, it is, again, a matter of concern that there are, as you say, significant bids, but the lists continue to grow. So what we need to see is significant um, delivery, and we, we need to see worth the mismatch between money being bid for and, and services being put on the ground yeah. in a way which helps people um, with the very difficult situations that they're facing. So I'd appreciate if you could send that. That, that's why, I mean, again, I, I still have to reiterate that some of our lack of ambition is because of the lack of recurrency that we're facing. Um, you know, it would be irresponsible of us to bid for and put services on the ground where we've got no assurance of funding in the future. So we do have to be careful in that respect. Um, and, and it does restrict but, but, our, our ambition to a degree. But we're dealing with a pandemic. We're also dealing with a crisis within within waiting lists. Surely it would be better to do what you can now, and even if it wasn't recurrent, and I and I accept that that's a difficulty, but at least you're better to light a candle than curse the darkness. Surely you're better to do what you can now within the resources you have, and uh, and do as much as you can now, and deal with how we how we ensure that's recurrent moving forward. But um, yeah, and I suppose um, it's it, but but it comes back to the fact that. If, if what needs to be done is employing more staff, you, you can't employ more staff when you can't guarantee them a job beyond the end of a year. And that that is the, the part of the difficulty we face. I mean, the, the fact that we're bidding for the money we're bidding for does reflect the fact that we're looking at short term measures where we can. But, um, you know, I, I, I suppose I can't recommend to the health minister that he 
put services on the ground that create budget pressures into the future that we may not, you know, the executive may not be able to meet. But would like, for example, hard pressed GP services and GPs have never been working harder yet. It's it's never been more difficult for, for people to get. So would GP services or emergency departments not welcome even some respite, even if it was for a year, if it was if it was doable? The idea of not doing it just because you couldn't continue it. We're dealing with this crisis right now. COVID has brought its own immediate impacts, additional impacts. Surely we can put in um, the maximum short term, even if they are short term. And again, I recognise they'd be better long term, but would they not be better for the year and take some of the pressure off the system where that help would be available? Yeah, and you know, I, as I say, I, I know that people have looked and explored that. So um, that I could, I suppose, I have. We've looked to see what can be done in the short term, and as I say, that that funding that I've described, the you know, there's there's. 100 and 155 million plus the 175 million is a considerable amount of non-recurrent funding that is being put in uh, and is being spent on those short-term measures. Okay, and the final one then for me, just were there any bids made, and again, it's linked to, to what we've been discussing, were there any bids made for additional capital or resource grants to help roll out the MDTs across the north? And I'm, I'm aware that, that there is a now a new postcode lottery in terms of where the MDTs are located, and they're very welcome where they're at, but there are huge parts of the north, and I'm, I'm aware Southwest GP Federation bid for one weren't successful, but what bids have been made for additional MDT rollout, which we all recognise is a key component of primary care? Okay, so um, the MDT rollout, I know that in our final allocations, so um, they got 9.9 .9 million for the MDT rollout in 2122. Um, and I'm not, I don't, I don't have any other details column as to, you know, locations and things like that. It's not something I have to hand. I don't know if anybody else has any other detail on that. I mean, but is there any further any further bids in for additional uh, resources into the MDT rollout? Not in capital. I don't um, have any further and, bids and, on that. And and, and, and again. Again, there isn't um, any further bids being submitted in June monitoring and resource. We have £22 million of our um, £49 million NDNA transformation is being spent on MDTs. That's non-recurrent. Um, so we already have £22 million on the ground non-recurrently for MDTs. So again, the sorts of things we're doing um, non-recurrently in there would include some of the things I've mentioned earlier around the allied health professionals um, and you know some of the temporary staffing measures there but again it, it's not possible to put them on the ground permanently um, without recurrent funding. Yeah um, yeah that, that, that is that is regrettable but I don't think I don't think if we can do anything that would temporarily relieve the pressures that are that are building up and that are are actually uh, creating you know our hospitals are still operating at 104 103 percent even as of today and yesterday um you know the workforce appeal is there, is there any has there been any a uh, 
ambition in terms of extending that workforce appeal to bring people in, maybe say in relation to vaccinations that could take pressure off GPs in relation to any other area of work that where we could take some pressure off parts of the system? So again, there was um, there was another workforce appeal run, um, I think, um, at the start of this financial year. And I know that those staff are being redeployed, uh, sorry, being deployed into the service where they can be. Okay. Okay, well, listen, um, we'll have to leave it there for now. I think I think it is, it is a, I think, I think uh, honestly, I think people will look at it and, and wonder where's the sense of urgency and where's the ambition and the scale, given the scale of the difficulties we're facing. And, and the committee last week agreed that actually the scale of this difficulty requires an executive, um, an entire executive approach. And, and I think, I think everyone, recognizes that unless we bring the same level of um urgency of creativity and of of uh, that that sense of of cohesive and urgent action across the executive and 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 with you know i think we need to see some sort of an executive summit to try to address the waiting lists one in four people now on waiting lists and i think this this june monitoring round will fall a bit flat bridge i have to say in terms of the the scale of ambition um so I, I think it's something we're, we're going to have to come back to um, as we as we go forward. But I do want to thank you all for attending this morning, for the information you provided, the presentations, and for your questions and answers that you took from members, and wish you all the very best in the time ahead. Gormley Agat, and thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Um, members, any any comments or issues there that members want to raise? Yes, Carol. Yeah, sure. I I I understand that in a sense it's doing whatever a minister bids for, particularly a modern rounds. I mean, the minister needs to make the decision what to bid for. Okay. But having said that, this does not chime with what Robin Swan has said in the chamber or indeed in previous uh statements. So for example, in terms of safe staffing, in terms of the bid and point seven around nursing, midwifery and allied health professionals, um, I think it is an under ambitious target. Okay. Unless we get workforce planning sorted out properly, we're going to be, you know, for example, in Belfast, spending up to hundred million a year in agency staff at the detriment of organizing properly health and social care staff. You raised the issue of autism and the MDTs. There are shortages in those MDTs right across the board, which will actually delay a legal statementing process for children who need to be diagnosed with autism. So there's a legal requirement, in my opinion, that's just getting missed. Now, either it's getting missed um, because people don't understand the severity of this, or it's getting missed because they don't feel it's a priority and I would like to see a lot more detail underneath those headings so I would respectfully request under each of the headings exactly what's been spent what's been we've, we've got what's asked for but what's been spent on and I still didn't get a response to my question around the money going to agency staff under safe staffing legislation or not legislation there isn't any but the, the safe staffing budget headline um, and then that additional one under the June monitoring round. Because um, for me, it's it's critical. The role of this committee is to scrutinise, and I'm still 
despite the fair play the officials asking or offering as much information as they can, but we're not getting the detail that we require as a committee, in my opinion. Members content that we seek that further detailed breakdown under each of the headings? Yep. Members content. Okay. Thank you. Okay, members, I'm going to take a short break there. Um, could we come back at 10.55, please? So 5 to 11 to resume our, our next session. That's a 12-minute break there and back at 10.55. Thank you, members. And could I ask you, Clerk, to pause broadcasting or take us out of broadcasting? No problem. That's it. That's it now, Chair. That'll be my camera, the only one on at the minute.
Can you hear me now, Keith? Yes, sir. Can I hear you fine? Okay. And we have our panel in place. Okay. So once we're... Are you we've happy got, enough to go back? I'm happy enough. We've enough members there as well. Tom, so happy to, to go okay. on. Okay. Let's go back live then. Thank you. That's us. Okay, thank you, members. And we're now resuming our meeting now uh, at item six, uh, which is a briefing from the Human Rights Commission in relation to access to reproductive health care services. So uh, this is a this is a briefing from the Commission on its monitoring report on reproductive health care provision in the North. And I refer members to a copy of the report, which is a tab 6.1 of the pack. So I would now like to welcome uh, Mr. Les Allenby, um, who is Chief Commissioner of the Human Rights Commission. Good morning, Les. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you fine. Can you hear me? Yep, we're hearing you there fine. Uh, Tafalt Sharot, Les, you're very welcome. And Dr. David Russell, who is Chief Executive. Can you hear us okay there, Dr. Russell? Yes, Chair. Thank you. Thank you. And Miss Ryanon Blythe, who is Director, Legal Research and Investigations and Advice to Government. Um, good morning, Rhiannon, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And can you hear me okay? Uh, yes, thank you, Chair. Thank you. So if members are content and to aid our time for briefings today, uh, and there will, I think there's going to be a fair bit of overlap with the two items. So I maybe ask the Commission <coughs> to start by briefing the committee on both their report on access to reproductive health care services and their submission to the committee on the severe fetal impairment abortion bill. And then we can allow members questions from members on both of those issues. So I think that's that's the best way to proceed. A copy of the Commission's submission to the committee on the bill is included at tab 7.1 of your pack there, members. So I'll maybe go back to yourself there, Les. Are, uh, are you content to leave in terms of briefing the committee this morning? And then we'll go to questions and answers. Um, yes, I am. And thank you for the invitation this morning and good morning. Um, I'll start with the monitoring um, report and um, a brief backdrop and recap. Um, following complaints in 2010 to the CEDAW committee, um, the committee decided to conduct an inquiry into abortion law and its impact in Northern Ireland. And that inquiry report was published in 2018, and it concluded that the old law created grave and systemic violations of human rights, and it made a number of recommendations, including that uh, women should be provided with access to high-quality abortion and post-abortion care in all public health facilities, and also to establish a mechanism to advance women's rights, uh, including through monitoring authorities' compliance with international standards. Uh, and that was um, tasked, um, including ensuring enhanced cooperation between the Department of Health and the Commission. It's fair to say the recommendations went beyond access to abortion. They're more wide-ranging. They looked at access to sexual and reproductive health services uh, more broadly. Those recommendations were endorsed by the UK government through the Northern Ireland Executive Formation Act in tw July 2019, which placed the duty on the Secretary of State to implement the recommendations in full uh, by the 31st of March 2020, and to decriminalise abortion by the 21st of October 2019, 
uh, unless the Northern Ireland executive, which wasn't, which was in abeyance at that time, had been restored. So that's the basis on which we commenced our monitoring initiative. It was part of the recommendations. It involved meeting with uh, those responsible for providing the service across all five health and social care trusts, meeting all the Royal Colleges of midwives, nurses, gynecologists and obstetricians, GPs, uh, the Public Health Agency, the Health and Social Care Board, the RQIA, the Department of Health, the NIO, Pharmaceutical Society, unregulated providers, the coroner's office, uh, and a number of both pro-choice and pro-life organizations. And we also held a roundtable with civic society organizations, both those who supported the reforms and those who were avowedly against the changes. So it was a very detailed <clears throat> inquiry uh, and monitoring to see what was happening on the ground. What we found was that a service was initially commenced in early April in two trusts on behalf of all five trusts. And by June 2020, in all the trust areas. However, by June, the service was confined to an early medical abortion service of up to nine weeks and six days with referrals coming from informing choices um, and emergency surgical arrangements being provided through the Belfast Health and Social Care Trust. And those services were being provided as a result of transferring staff from other sexual and reproductive health care services, <clears throat> which were either in abeyance or facing reduced demand due to the pandemic. None of the services were being commissioned or funded by the Department of Health and informing choices were providing the referral service without any additional financial support. Uh, the Department of Health had provided no guidance, public information, or other tangible support for the service. Um, what the trusts were saying to us was that they are used to managing risk and normally do so within a clear framework and operational guidance. And here they were being asked to do this without such a framework. The reality is the service has not met the legal requirements. It's also been suspended on a number of occasions within three trusts. So for example, the Northern Trust didn't provide a service for three months from October 2020 to January 21. In the Southeastern Trust, it was suspended for a month from January 2021, and it currently suspended in the Western Trust for the past five weeks, and we don't know how long it will be before the service is restored. It's also clear that none of those trusts, when they suspended the services, were able to refer women to other parts of Northern Ireland to access the service. <clears throat> so there's been a make-do and mend approach, um, frankly, through heroic efforts of clinicians, um, within trusts. Um, two of the three uh, suspensions, for example, were because the one person who was providing the service was no longer able to do so. But there have been um, an early medical abortion service in that there were 1,373 early medical abortions in Northern Ireland during the financial year 2020 to 21. But it's also clear that significant numbers of women 
have been forced to travel to Britain, usually Liverpool and Manchester, for a termination, despite the pandemic um, and what travel restrictions there are. And it's also clear that the numbers of women using unregulated services has dropped markedly. So as best as we can ascertain, the numbers of terminations overall have not necessarily increased substantially. Instead, women have been more readily able to access at least an early abortion service um, through regulated provision locally. But I must emphasize that the service is not in accordance with the abortion regulations. Its provision is precarious, it's prone to suspension, and in the near term can only be provided at the expense of other sexual and reproductive healthcare services, and that's deeply unsatisfactory. The Department of Health brought a paper to the Northern Ireland Executive on the 3rd of April 2020, seeking to make provision for an emergency early medical abortion service due to the pandemic. And that paper's proposals could not be agreed within the executive. Um, a further paper was tabled on the 6th of May, but it was never discussed. And following the Commission's recent legal challenge, there have been further attempts to get the issue discussed without any success to date. It's fair to say from the papers that we received in the legal case that the legal challenge has concentrated the minds of people in both London and Belfast. The key recommendations of our report are that the Secretary of State should take the required legislative action to ensure the recommendations in the CEDAW report are fully implemented in line with Westminster legislation and that the Department of Health commission and fund abortion services while the Northern Ireland executive enable that to happen. So in practice, we've gone to court once again to try and ensure those recommendations are actioned. And it's deeply regrettable that we've had to do that once again. There are a number of other recommendations, but I've just focused on the key ones. The second part of this morning's um, evidence is to consider the severe fetal impairment abortion amendment bill. In effect, the bill seeks to prevent abortions being carried out on the grounds of physical and mental impairment that amounts to a serious disability. The CEDAW um, inquiry held, and I'm quoting here, that the committee assessed the gravity of human rights violations in Northern Ireland in light of the suffering experienced by women and girls who carry pregnancy to full term against their will, owing to the current restrictive, and this is the old uh, regime, uh, on abortion. Um, and the committee interprets Articles 12 and 16 of CEDAW, read with Articles 2 and 5, to require state parties to legalize abortion, at least in cases of rape, incest, threats to the life and or health, physical or mental, of a woman, or severe people impairment. Um, when the 2020 regulations were passed to introduce the current reform, Viscount Younger, um, speaking for the government in the House of Lords, said, I remind the noble lords that the regulations can be amended in Northern Ireland, should that be so wished in the future, so long as any amendments are compatible with the European Convention on Human Rights, uh, 
and compliant with the Convention on Elimination of Discrimination Against Women. So the question of CEDAW's recommendations and their compatibility, <clears throat> for example, with the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities has been raised. And a joint statement was issued between the two bodies in August 2018. And that statement finished by saying, and once again, I'm quoting, that in all efforts to implement their obligations regarding sexual and reproductive health and rights, including access to safe and legal abortion, the committees calls upon state parties to take a human rights-based approach that safeguards the reproductive choice and autonomy of all women, including women with disabilities. Now, it's fair to say that the UNCRPD approach has been to treat pregnancy and access to abortion equally, regardless of fetal impairment, and that's been the focus of the committee. And it's never definitively outlined whether that should be equality within a permissive or a restrictive regime. Nonetheless, if you read the joint statement as a whole, it's clear that any arrangement should focus strongly on a woman's right to personal autonomy, and this bill does not appear to do that. I'm also very mindful that the Northern Ireland Contraception and Abortion Task Force's recent report outlined that Northern Ireland lacks the level of provision for prenatal testing available elsewhere in the UK, and that makes it less likely that a severe fetal abnormality will be diagnosed at an early stage. The reality is that where a severe fetal impairment arises, it's normally a wanted pregnancy, and it places a woman in a particularly acute and difficult position. The Commission's also aware that the equivalent provisions in the 1967 Abortion Act are being legally challenged in the High Court in London on the grounds that they are not human rights compliant. Um, and there's a hearing uh, on the 6th of July 2021. That's a case being taken in the name of Heidi Crowder. So in those circumstances, we think it might be prudent to wait to see what the courts decide in Britain before embarking on a law that removes provision in Northern Ireland. So in summary, we do not think the bill, current bill is in compliance with the recommendations of the CEDAW inquiry into abortion in Northern Ireland. The Westminster government has tasked the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland to fully implement the recommendations of the CEDAW report. And while the Northern Ireland Assembly can legislate in these matters, it should do so in compliance with the CEDAW recommendations. And we don't think it does. I'll just check with um, Rhiannon and David if they want to add anything, and then we're happy to take questions from, from the committee. Okay, so both Rhiannon and David are, are indicating that they're okay there at this point. So um, a couple from myself first, Les, and thank you for your presentation, and uh, a couple from myself, and then I'll go to committee members. Um, you mentioned there that uh, that that it's a make do and mend in terms of the current provision of services, make do and mend, um, and un unsustainable. So, what what is your recommendation that needs to happen in order to address that immediate situation, um, satisfactorily? Well, in effect, the Department of Health needs to commission and fund the service. It needs to resource the service, as I understand from our discussions with the department. The issue here is not 
primarily finance or COVID. Um, the department uh, has already asked for a um, an emergency medical abortion service to be um, provided during the pandemic. I now understand the department is willing to scope out a service uh, to commission a service. The problem lies with, um, and we think um, on this issue, the department is right legally that it must bring it to the Northern Ireland executive. The Northern Ireland executive doesn't actually commission services, but it obviously needs to give its um, agreement for the department to go ahead uh, under the ministerial code. So we really are saying that the Department of Health and the Northern Ireland Executive should enable the service to happen. But in the absence of that, then the responsibility falls on the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, because what the law says in Britain is effectively he is responsible for fully implementing the CEDAW recommendations. So we think the current service is not human rights compliant, and that's the grounds on which we've taken the case against the Department of Health uh, and the executive. And then in terms of the Secretary of State, the action is based on um, uh, the statutory duty laid down by Parliament in Westminster. And it's worth mentioning that that duty was to ensure the recommendations were complied with expeditiously, which effectively means um, with some urgency and we're now um, 14 months after the regulations, and we're still in the situation that I'd outlined earlier. Okay, thank you, Commissioner. Um, and then in relation to the the, uh, the the bill in front of us and the evidence session in relation to the bill, and you have clearly indicated that you believe it's not compliant with human rights, and nor is it compliant with the recommendations of CEDAW. You had referenced um, screening, um, current screening and, and the, the levels of screening. And and I think in relation to that, you said it would be prudent to await the court decision in Britain. That's the Heidi Crowther court case. Could you elaborate a little bit on that as to your thinking around that, please? Yes. If um, I've read some of the papers in the Heidi Crowther case. I um, personally don't think the case will succeed. But I'm long um, and wise enough in the tooth to know that um, predicting the outcome of a court case is um, is something that you should be always very careful about. So I think we should wait and see what happens. If that court case, for example, was to succeed, then it's designed to remove the um, uh, grounds for abortion in, in England, Scotland and Wales around severe fetal impairment as well. Um, and therefore, the question about the current bill, effectively what it does is leave a woman, usually with a late-term abortion, having to travel to Britain, where there is a um, increased risk, frankly, as well as the distress that it causes. I think we need some certainty as to whether a service will be, will be available in Britain. I think it still will. Um, and therefore, it just makes sense, I think, to see uh, what happens to the legal challenge. It'll also clarify the argument as to whether severe fetal impairment um, provisions is in compliance with the European Convention on Human Rights. We think it is, but that's a matter for the courts ultimately to decide. Okay. Okay, thank you. Okay, so I'm going to go to members. So at this point, I'm going to go first of all to our Deputy Chair, Pam Cameron. Then I have Jonathan Buckley, Jerry Carroll, 
Paula Bradshaw and Carol Nikellen. So I will go there to yourself, Pam, please. Thank you, Chair, and thank you, Mr. Almby, and your, your team for your presentation and also for your attendance at committee this morning. Greatly appreciate your, your time. In terms, uh, a question for each of the issues, uh, but in terms of the commissioning services, there's um, much criticism in this report about the inequality of access and failure to commission services. But does the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission also recognise that retaining early medical abortion services in the context where resources are already stretched would actually perpetuate new inequalities in care and support in other frontline services? So do you recognise that we can't operate in a vacuum, ignoring a clear uh, resourcing constraints that, that face our health service? Um, absolutely recognise the health um, care services are under enormous pressures. Um, our understanding and our discussions about the reasons for the full service not being implemented is not primarily an issue of finance. It's an issue of political will. Um, that isn't to say there aren't costs associated with the service, but we think that um, early medical abortion and wider abortion services is a priority. Um, the trusts are willing to provide the service. They've they've managed to, to do what they can. Um, and we think that if you look at the CEDAW recommendations as a whole, which are about access to wider sexual and reproductive health care services, which are important services for um, for women, um, that they should be given the priority um, um, and in that in those circumstances, um, what commissioning and funding a service does is allow the trusts to recruit the staff necessary to meet all their sexual and reproductive health care services. Um, and it's in our interest to have um, a proper service for women. Um, we expect women in the absence of that, and a number of women <clears throat> are still having to travel to Britain. <clears throat> Frankly, that's not satisfactory in normal circumstances, but asking women to travel during the pandemic, at times women have been asked to travel to Liverpool <clears throat> or Manchester to undergo um, a termination and to get back to Belfast all in one day and night because, of course, there's nowhere to stay in Liverpool or Manchester at various times during the pandemic. That's that's not a uh, in the 21st century the kind of service that we think women should um, should have or deserve. I appreciate your your response there, and I and I fully appreciate that it's a very very sensitive and very difficult issue for many. Um, in terms of the severe fatal um, impairment abortion amendment bill, um, abortion on the grounds of serious fatal impairment perpetuates um, stereotypes, and the current law um, <coughs> in Westminster is at odds with the aims of promoting an inclusive and diverse society within Northern Ireland. And that's why we're supportive of the intentions of this bill. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, what, uh, how does the, the view that the unborn child doesn't have any right to life under human rights law contrast with, with equivalent protections under the Criminal Justice Act? I mean, are we not sending uh, mixed messages about uh, the protections that we offer the most vulnerable? Yeah, our, our case, um, particularly in the High Court, 
I think, established what the common law, the judge-made law in Northern Ireland is. It's the same as England and Wales. And that, in essence, is that um, the rights of a, a fetus or an unborn child um, has no freestanding rights. Any rights that um, an unborn child or fetus has are inextricably linked to those of the woman, save where statutory uh, provision provides otherwise. And, and you've just given an example of where the statutory provision is. Um, so that doesn't preclude, of course, other statutory provision. Um, and that's what this um, bill is intending to do. But we say that it must be compatible with CEDAW. And in this case, the CEDAW um, uh, recommendations have been implemented full, full, you know, have been implemented through Westminster legislation. So the UK government has decided to um, take those international obligations and implement them within uh, the framework of, of UK law. And that's effectively what the dualist approach is. In other words, um, the UK government signs up to treaties, including CEDAW, um, but to make those treaties justiciable is a matter for Westminster Parliament. And in this case, with these recommendations, that's what they've done. And therefore, we think the Assembly should, uh, while it, it has a perfectly legitimate right to uh, legislate within this area, it should do so in a way that's compat compatible with the CEDAW recommendations in this report, which were that there were grave and systemic violations of human rights under the old law. Um, so that's not to be treated lightly. Appreciate your response. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Thanks. Thank you, Pam. Thank you, Pam. <coughs> and uh, Jonathan, go ahead there, please. Thank you, Chair, and thank you, panel. And I suppose probably, first of all, I will outline the obvious that the DEP is resolutely a pro-life party and we, uh, we oppose the current regulations. We are interested in saving lives, not taking lives. And I suppose probably what I will say is that I, I wholeheartedly support the approach adopted by the Minister in relation to the need for the executive agreement on, on what is a cross-cutting and controversial issue. And I think that the intervention by the Secretary of State is deeply destabilising at this time. Um, I would like to ask in relation, first of all, uh, to the panel, in relation to the Commission's desire to see the definition of conscientious objection defined, do the representatives recognise that risk, uh, the risk that restricting the exemption only to direct abortion services rather than auxiliary functions may unduly infringe freedom of conscience and religion? Um, thanks, Jonathan. Yeah, um, I should start by saying the Human Rights Commission is neither pro-life nor pro-choice. It's pro-human rights. Um, and I hope that we have engaged in a very respectful debate with, with people from across the spectrum of views on, on this issue. And we entirely respect the freedom of conscience that people have um, around this issue. And it's a touchstone issue for many people, um, both those who are both, as I say, pro-choice and pro-life and, and those who find themselves somewhere on that continuum. Um, what we found in our report on freedom of conscience was that um, it wasn't impairing the service to date that was largely because the service is being provided by a relatively small number of um, clinicians and others um, that in the absence of any guidance from the Department of Health, um, most of the staff were falling back on 
their own professional bodies, Royal College of Nurses and Midwives, etc. We think there should be some clear guidance from the Department of Health. We think it should be primarily based on the case law in the Greater Glasgow case. Um, it may well draw as well on, on Article 9 of freedom of conscience. But the trusts did raise with us that if a full service was um, to be implemented, then there may be more significant freedom of conscience issues. <clears throat> it's clear to us that um, we think the parameters that are taken should be with, with the, uh, within the kind of Supreme Court grounds. Um, and therefore, um, questions about, for example, should administrators and, and others um, not even be able to make an appointment, etc. We don't think it extends to that to that extent. Um, but it's fair to say that the issue of freedom of conscience may become more of an issue if the full service envisaged in the regulations um, is rolled out. Um, but to date, it hasn't been um, um, an issue. But it's there and it's coming down the track. Yeah, no, I, I just want want to put on record my my concern. It's deeply worrying in my eyes as to the direction of travel. Some which some may want to take this in relation to freedom of conscience, because at the extreme, it could risk it requiring medical prof professionals to perform auxiliary or support services connected with abortion against against their conscience. And I, I or my party will never support a restriction a restriction on that freedom of conscience. Yeah. Um, so that's that's just a, 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 another point. And I don't know if you want to come back to that or I can move um, on to the I, next part of my... I, I don't know. I'll just check if either of my colleagues wanted to comment on the freedom of conscience issue. And, and if not, then, then happy to, to move on to the second point. David and Rhiannon, are you happy we've covered... Yeah, I'm not going to get... So let... Happy to move on to your second point, okay, then. Yes, no problem. Uh, and that's in relation to the severe fetal impairment abortion amendment bill. Uh, my colleague Pam Cameron has rightly outlined why uh, we would support this approach and support this bill. So can I ask, uh, do, do the representatives feel there's a space for enhancing specialised care pathways for those women uh, who have uh, received a diagnosis of fetal impairment? Uh, isn't there a real danger in viewing these wholly solely through the lens of abortion? Um, we've always been very clear as a commission <clears throat> that um, part of a woman's right to bodily autonomy is the right to carry a pregnancy to a full term and be completely fully supported, as well as um, the right not to do so. And we think that the pathways should be there, both in terms of those who choose to um, have um uh, a pregnancy to full term, whether that's in a case of fatal fetal abnormality, severe fetal impairment, or in other circumstances, as well as those who choose otherwise should also have proper um, uh, care and aftercare. One of the things, and I, it, I have to say, is remains very clear in my memory is when the um, committee undertook its report in 20, uh, it came and did a visit to Belfast and, and met people of all shades of opinion um, as part of its work. It fell in the week where the um, paediatric pathologist, only one of two in Northern Ireland, resigned because of the arrangements that were having to be put in place for um, uh, women and um, their partners to bring back fetal remains. 
and in cooler bags in various other circumstances. And because she was so disturbed about the kind of um, arrangements in place, she resigned after 25 years in the service. Now, we need to move to a stage where aftercare for those who do go to term and those who don't is centered on the woman herself and her needs, regardless of her um, choice that she's made. So to, to that extent, I'm, I'm absolutely in, in agreement with you. I don't think it should be a, a one-sided approach to pathways to care. It should take into account all the particular um, decisions that a woman uh, may want to make. Um, much of the debate surrounding <clears throat> the severe fatal impairment bill has been around the impact upon those uh, young people uh, indeed born with Down syndrome. Uh, it's an issue which is continuing to, to cause much hurt right across uh, uh, the, the country in relation to those families that uh, have children that have had Down syndrome and went on to live full uh, and uh, fulfilling lives and are valued members of, of their family and indeed their community. Um, the, the type of response and the type of language uh, that we see here from the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission have recommended the rollout of early testing for conditions such as Down syndrome. Do, I want to ask, do you recognise the importance of ensuring the culture surrounding such tests is, is supportive rather than negative? Because uh, it can easily be perceived that we went down a, an approach now whereby um, there's an attempt to screen out those with um, Down syndrome from our society, which I feel is wholly inadequate and wholly wrong. <clears throat> yeah, I absolutely believe that... Um... A, we, the, the purpose of having an early testing regime is, is not solely focused on Down syndrome. There could be all kinds of other severe fetal impairments. And the earlier those are um, discovered, the more likely it is that a woman will get um, the care um, that she needs and the time to, um, to assess her situation. Um, I think... Um, and I, in amongst the papers, for example, in the Heidi Crowder case, um, there are um, now guidance that the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists uh, have about how to deal with these situations. Um, there's a joint piece of work that's about to be completed as well. Um, the British Medical Association has done work. There's a great deal of... Um, guidance around how to properly and sensitively um, treat these situations. I don't think we should make any assumptions around um, uh, Down syndrome. It's absolutely clear that people with Down syndrome can lead full um, and fulfilling lives. And um, so we sh the focus I know on Down syndrome, I think we have to look at the wider questions, but I'm absolutely clear that there should be proper um care and respect for uh for women um and the difficult choices they have to make in those situations and that should be about as well recognizing um the value of um all lives um and that includes um, those who have disabilities severe fetal impairments um in circumstances where someone chooses to to go to term and then to to provide the appropriate care and the state should be providing that care um, in support of of families as well okay thank you and thank you chair thank you jonathan and going then to um jerry carroll 
Jerry Lamaray Ladahol. Thanks, Chair. Thanks, Les, and thanks to your team for being here. Uh, just to kind of tease <coughs> out uh, the kind of role of, of the Minister of Health, um, I think in the report it sort of clarifies and restates that he has sole responsibility for, for providing uh, these uh, abortion services under the regulations. And, and you have said, Les, today that it's obviously not finance or COVID reasons why these services have been either delayed or stopped or not fully uh, enacted. Uh, so to me, that would suggest that the reason for uh, not implementing services either either is because of um, the minister's view uh, on the issue or his view that it needs to be brought uh, to the executive. But uh, can you just clarify that um, in in your assessment uh, as a commission uh, of the regulations and indeed from the executive's response to yourself that it's the minister who has the responsibility to to act and provide these these services? Yeah, we're absolutely clear <clears throat> that it is. Um, the Northern Ireland executives, um, one of their defences, if you like, to our legal action was that we don't provide, uh, we have no um, um, basis for commissioning or funding such services. Um, we took legal advice at a very early stage. If, if you remember on the 31st of March, the day the service was to be introduced, there was a brief hiatus when uh, a gatherer phone call from somewhere in the Department of Health told the trust not to implement the service ourselves, the Royal College of Gynecologists. I think we came actually to the health committee at that stage. Um, and then fairly quickly, the chief medical officer um, wrote to the Royal College of uh, Gynecologists and Obst Obstetricians to say that if the trusts wish to commence a service, they can. Um, now, um, in, um, in, in those circumstances, um, we did feel, uh, having taken the legal advice, about whether, in fact, the matter had to be brought to the Northern Ireland Executive under the Ministerial Code. In other words, is it cross-cutting and controversial? The advice we got was that actually the Minister of Health did have to bring it to the Executive, and it did require Northern Ireland Executive approval. I understand that the eventually um, legal advice was sought from the Attorney General. And while I haven't seen the advice, I understand the Attorney General's advice was was similar to our own, that this was a matter that had to come to the executive. The problem is it hasn't been able to get through the executive. The service that or the proposal that the minister brought was for an early medical abortion service during the pandemic. It wasn't the full implementation of the service. And it's only in the um, last few weeks that the department have signaled that they're now going to try and set up a working group to effectively scope out what a, a fully commissioned um, service and funded service would look like. But it still has the caveat that that service would have to go to the Northern Ireland Executive. And that's why the um, Secretary of State has issued the 2021 regulations about directing a service because it's pretty clear that it's not going to be possible by the looks of it to get agreement within the Northern Ireland Executive to allow the Department of Health to properly um, and fully fund and commission the service. Um, how much effort has been made by the Minister to get this through the Executive um, is open to question, although it's fair to say it's probably an uphill battle given the position of the various parties within the Executive on this issue. Um, the reality is that getting political agreement on this is not going to be easy. 
Yeah, thanks, Les. And I would just make a point that, you know, bring it to the, to the executive, I think, is a political decision. Um, and in my view, you don't have to comment on this. In my view, it's bringing it there so with, uh, uh, with the understanding that there probably won't be uh, agreement. And also the idea of controversial, I understand that not everybody agrees with, with uh, uh, abortion or, or having the right to choose, but a life and time survey and other surveys show that the vast, vast majority of people here want want the uh, choice um so listen thanks just a couple of quick questions so sorry just to move on quickly um in terms of the severe fetal impairment bill um the, the commission's report has referenced the supreme court um i think it was the i don't know if it was a ruling or a decision uh, around the starting point to any discussion about uh rights uh has to be about you know people being able to choose um what to do with their own with their own bodies um, I mean, how, how dangerous or what, what situation are we in if, if the state kind of decides uh, what people can't and can't do in terms of getting access uh, to healthcare, especially when it is reproductive health care? And can you confirm that there's no compulsion um, on, on women uh, to proceed with the termination if they do get a, a severe fetal diagnosis? The choice is really up to them in terms of their <coughs> medical and seeking guidance and uh, consultation? Yeah, Article 8, um, in our original uh, claim, um, which was upheld, but of course, when it went to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court decided we couldn't take, uh, we didn't have the powers to take a case in our own name. We were always hamstrung by the fact that it would be very difficult to ask um, a pregnant woman who's already going through very difficult circumstances to add going to court on top of that. But what the courts did give was an indicative view, which was it was contrary to Article 8, um, the right to private and family life and a woman's uh, right to personal and bodily autonomy. But the right to personal and bodily autonomy is, is the right to carry a pregnancy to full term alongside a right not to do so in accordance with the law. Um, so it's absolutely clear that there should be nothing to impair a woman making a free choice to carry to term if that's what she wishes to do. And just a very quick one, Chair. Um, in, in regards to the regulations, uh, Les, there's obviously sanctions and criminal offences for um, GP and medical practitioners. I think it's up to £5,000 fine, I think. Uh, but the lack of guidance, um, I mean, what impact is that having on GPs, obstetrician, gynaecologists in terms of fear of providing... Uh, services and not knowing, um, you know, what they can and cannot do. Um, what impact does that have on, on on medical practitioners? Yeah, we we heard some evidence in our inquiry about, um, uh, and it's anecdotal about an, some GPs who um, were making it difficult to provide a service. We had some, again, anecdotal evidence to suggest that the lack of guidance and clarity was causing some difficulties for GPs. Um, um, the question of um, um, uh, criminal, we, we always wanted to see abortion decriminalized, but it's still a criminal offense in certain circumstances. Um, and it also, there are professional obligations that clinicians have, and that includes to um, follow the law. Um, um, uh, so it's clear to us, so we found no evidence, for example, of clinicians being cavalier with the law in terms of how um, they interpreted it when they were providing a service within the trusts. Um, and the picture was somewhat more mixed 
um, one of the problems is the lack of clear public information and guidance coming from the Department of Health. It took some time, for example, for women to actually realise that there was a service to be accessed in Northern Ireland, particularly in the first few weeks of the service, simply because no work was done in preparation by way of public information so that women could understand what actually the service was that they could access. And that still remains today. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks, Liz. Thanks, Chair. Thank you, Jerry. I'm going then across to Paula Bradshaw. Go ahead, Paula, please. And thank you, Chair, and thank you, panel, for your presentation um, submission um, to to the Health Committee. Um, in terms of the severe um, fetal impairment bill, I'm absolutely clear where, where your paper sits on that, and, and thank you for the work, the intensive work that went into that. And I don't really have any questions, but I would put on record that I I am in agreement uh, with Jonathan Buckley. I'm sure it'd be. Um, uh, surprised to hear this morning, I would agree with him that we need to ensure that the pathways for women um, receiving that um, diagnosis that there are that they are supported where they want to continue to term, and also the issue around sensitivities around screening. I think that we as a committee will need to work and continue to look at that. So I'm going to focus in on your paper then in terms of the monitoring um, and in, in the report you reference the telemedicine and the short period of time that they pass provided um, a service um, in Northern Ireland in April 2020, and that that ceased quite quickly because of a direction from the Department of Health. Were you given any understanding at that time, given that there were huge travel restrictions in place, people were being asked to shield, and that we knew already from police records that domestic abuse incidents were starting to rise? Why on earth did the Department of Health here in Northern Ireland intervene in this instance? That's the first question, thank you. Um, my, my understanding is the Department of Health considered that the BPAS service was not in accordance with the law. In England, Scotland and Wales, the law was amended to allow a telemedicine service to be provided um, as a result of the pandemic. I think there was a legal challenge actually by the, it may have been Christian Concern, um, which was unsuccessful to challenge that um, those arrangements. Um, in Northern Ireland, we decided not to uh, implement any legislation to allow similar access to telemedicine. It's one of the areas that we think should be looked at. Um, and there was certainly, and again, um, in fairness to the Department of Health, that there were certainly some legal issues around providing the telemedicine service um, by BPAS which were then dealt with in England, Scotland and Wales. So um, that's my understanding of the backdrop as to as to why that happened. Um, thank you very much. Also in your report, you talk about the um, movement from the Department of Health um, in recent weeks, um, uh, the third off the back of the third ground of your legal challenge around failure to commission and fund services. And, and you were advised that this new team has been set up, project team has been set up within the, within the Department of Health to start looking at the commissioning of abortion services, but you indicate that um, Department of Health has said that it will be between 8 to 12 months. Have you any understanding as to why it is going to take so long, considering a lot of work has already taken place amongst those cl clinicians and healthcare professionals in this field to look at what the service could look like? Thank you. Yeah, there are a number of procedures, so it will, it will take a bit of time. I think we have two points to make about this. One, you should be putting in some interim arrangements in the meantime. Um, 
it doesn't seem to me to be any reason why you couldn't, for example, uh, properly fund uh, informing choices to um, continue its referral service, and that you could do, you could make some other um, um, interim arrangements. Uh, I think it personally, having looked at it, eight to 12 months seems um, sl it slightly prolonged. And in, in a discussion around the um, uh, the court case, that if we were to win, and that's obviously a big if, how long do we think um, it should take? And we were very clear with the judge that if we were successful, we would like a time uh, definition as to how long it would take to properly um, commission and fund the service. We felt, frankly, a maximum of um, six months from the time when the um, work was um, supposed to have commenced would have been appropriate. So we think we think that could be delivered in a more timely fashion. And we think in the meantime, you can do some things um, to improve the service and put it on a more stable footing prior to rolling it out on a uh, on a completely um, um, footing that's in line with the regulations that were passed in, in March 2020. Thank you, Les, and thank you, Chair. Thank you, Paula. Um, go on now to Carol Nicullen. Go ahead, Carol Liddell. Thank you, Les, for your um, presentation and indeed the panel for the paper. So protecting women and girls from harassment, um, you will have seen from the protests outside health and social care settings, um, which are also quite disturbing, to be frank. Um, so when you're talking about interim arrangements, would they include protection for women accessing um, health and social care, particularly around reproductive health, is my first question. And then secondly, you've partially answered it, Liz, you know, in anticipation of whatever the Department of Health is going to bring forward or what they can bring forward because currently it's being blocked um, uh, at the executive. So what what would those interim arrangements look like? And could would they also, my final question, when it talks about early screening, it's not the screen out, it's just early screening because at the minute um, women have to pay for an early scan, which is quite expensive, um, particularly if there there are concerns around the pregnancy <coughs> or the the success of, of the pregnancy, um, would they also be included as part of any interim arrangements? Thank you. Um, <clears throat> yeah, on on protests, we recognise there is the issue of um, freedom of assembly. There is a freedom to protest. But we think that that um, uh, can be can be allowed in circumstances where women should be allowed to attend um, clinics uh, unfettered, um, not put under under undue pressure. Um, from memory, and my colleagues will remind me of this. I think there was a recommendation in the CEDAW report to the effect that actually. Um, the law should be amended. It's one of the few areas where the um, the Northern Ireland uh, Office and the Secretary of State has decided not to implement change. I think that's regrettable. We're not suggesting that people shouldn't be able to protest, but it should be in a manner that does not um, leave people intimidated or in fear. 
and that's clearly not always been the case in in some in some circumstances in terms of interim arrangements there are all kinds of ways that that could be done you could for example put funding into um other sexual reproductive health services which would then free up um those who are providing the interim service for example you could fund as i say earlier informing choices there are things that you can do you could start to ensure early screening is is available um there, you raise a very valid point which is um in effect what you have at the moment is if you can afford to pay for an early screening process so it raises an issue of of equity uh, based on your if you like income cl social class etc those who are well off can obviously afford to do that those who aren't um or those who don't have um the kind of family and other support simply won't be able to to afford that so there'll be an inequity based on your financial circumstances or social class i, I don't know what yeah can i chair maybe come in on this point uh, carl in, in terms of the issue ahead, that, yeah. about, thank you in terms of the issue that's been raised by a couple of members now around prenatal diagnostic testing um i think from our perspective it's important to emphasize that the current bill that, that's before the assembly the, the absence of prenatal testing in northern ireland combined with gestational time limits and the circumstances of the current bill and the Commission's view makes this piece of legislation incompatible with the European Convention on Human Rights and potentially in breach of Article 3 and Article 8. So the bill itself makes human rights impractical um, and illusory for women in, in the circumstances proposed. And it has a wider issue with regards to prenatal diagnostic testing because of what Les has just said. There's socioeconomic um, inequalities being created by the current effective privatization of a system. If you have the money, you can pay and get access. If you don't, you can't. Um, and no doubt the committee will be fully over the issue, but pre the diagnostic testing available and a gestational time limit of 12 weeks, in effect, for the majority of instances, makes the diagnostic testing a total nonsense. It's it's a pointless exercise for most women. So really, we're we're creating a two tier system approach to reproductive health. So middle class women will have the means and the support for um, interventions where women from deprived communities with no access to financial support won't. That's basically the. The two, -tier, the two tier system already exists and it already existed before the current debate on abortion law in Northern Ireland and it's it's well and truly publicized. Those who could afford to pay could afford to pay for both private prenatal diagnostic testing available in Northern Ireland privately and they could afford to get onto the boat or onto the plane if they chose not to carry their, their pregnancy to term and access an abortion service private in England. In part, the regulations have addressed that issue of travel um, mm -hmm. because there's the free England pathway. We don't think that's compatible, but not making diagnostic testing available on demand under the NHS in Northern Ireland perpetuates an inequality that already exists. Yeah, so it's what working class women are failed to gain, frankly. Okay. Okay, thank, thank you. And going then to 
Kiara, Hunter, Kiara, please go ahead. Thank you, Chair, and thank you to the panel uh, for being here today. Your contributions and your comments uh, are most welcome, and I'm grateful that you're here. Um, I acknowledge the important point that you had touched on, Les, about telemedicine. Um, I'm based in a rural constituency myself, uh, and I think it's really important to mention throughout uh, the pandemic, there's been that uh, layer of complexity with having to travel. And uh, I've often raised the barriers women experience when living in rural areas uh, for any kind of healthcare, including reproductive healthcare, and certainly what we've seen are uh, over the past year or so, it's been difficult to access um, contraceptives, but especially long-term uh, contraceptives like IUDs. Yeah. Um, so I'm just wondering, what ways do you think tele telemedicine will help alleviate um, these barriers for rural women and girls and um, help tackle those concerns to ensure that uh, rural women have that right to privacy? Thank you. <clears throat> yeah, well, the arrangements that were introduced in, in England, Scotland um, and Wales were about being able to take um, the second set of pills at home, for example. Um, and um, uh, in, a, in addition, um, it's absolutely clear to us that if you live in a rural area, accessing services is more difficult. One of the things that we found came up time and again in our, our research was that um, a number of women were concerned about attending clinics because Northern Ireland is a small village. And if you turned up and were seen by staff or other people in, in the services, that they would know um, about your business and you may well want to keep your business private. Um, the applicant in our case is an interesting example. Um, she was a woman who lived in the Northern Trust area. Um, her pregnancy was uh, unexpected. Um, we had a supportive partner and she was quite shocked to discover that there was no service in the Northern Trust at the time when this had happened and was being placed in a position where she was being asked to travel instead. And the issue for her was that, again, in a small place, she would have had to, and this was at a time when there was a lockdown in Liverpool and Manchester, A, she would have had to have asked for time off at work suddenly B, she would have to, in a close-knit family in a rural area, had suddenly disappeared to uh, off to um, uh, England, um, all of which would have thrown considerable kind of, what on earth is going on? Why are you travelling to England in this circumstance? So she was left with a, in a position of not wanting, for personal circumstances, others to know about this, very aware of her privacy, and in the end went down the unregulated route. Um, and A, you still have to pay for the unregulated route. It's not massively expensive, but she was very conscious that she was lucky enough to be able to afford it. But B, she was again in a position of if something had gone wrong, she would have had to present herself to an emergency department and again, almost certainly reveal her circumstances. So she didn't have the backing, if you like, of a kind of NHS service. And even though everything went fine for her, she really found it very stressful and difficult. Um, now, that occurs whether you live, frankly, in an urban or a rural area. But in a rural area, you've got even more sense, I think, of of um, the issues about revealing what your um, personal circumstances are to those, you know, in your immediate surroundings. So there are issues about accessing services rurally. Um, for example, the Western, the Western Health Trust Clinic uh, was based in Derry. 
but the Western Trust has a very broad, you know, wide range. So you've got a significant um, travel to attend a clinic in the Western Trust when it was um, in place. So um, you're quite right to point out that um, the issue of r rural services is quite a significant one. Thank, thank you, Les. I have another question on um, adequate screening and equipment. Um, I had done some research around the costings, as Carl has raised as well, and currently it's £573 in the Belfast Trust, if you're in, privately, pardon me, um, to get access to the Iona test. But I'll wait until the next agenda item. But thank you for, for talking and um, your response about a lived experience was very helpful. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Cara. And finally, for now, in terms of indications that I have, is from Alan Chambers. Alan, go ahead, please. Alan, we're not hearing you there presently. We did hear you the last time. I'm sorry, there was my mute button. Commissioner, okay. just. I'm very pleased that uh, you have placed on record the fact that the uh, health minister does have to go to the executive to get the approval of the executive before he can implement the uh, anything around the uh, abortion services. And I know that some people have found that very hard to uh, accept uh, that the minister has been saying that all along. And indeed, uh, uh, many people have actually challenged that view. So I'm glad that that has been placed on the record. Um, in terms of uh, you know abortion services at the moment, you know I, I hear whispers that uh, that people would suggest that perhaps the uh, that the minister allows his own views on abortion, whatever they may be, uh, to uh, um, interfere with his ministerial responsibilities to deliver services, but. Um, I certainly see nothing in your report that uh, that would suggest that, Commissioner. Thank you. Just briefly, I've met Robin uh, on a number of occasions during this. He's always been very open and honest about his views on the matter, but also been very proprietary in, in um, our discussions. And he has been consistent in that this is a matter that um, has to go to the Northern Ireland executive, and we agree on that. How hard he's pushed it at the Northern Ireland executive is another matter, and whether it would have made a difference if he had is open to open to debate. But I think he, he's been perfectly legitimate in saying this is a matter that has to go to the Northern Ireland Executive. Uh, but in terms of uh, you, you comment there, Commissioner, that uh, about uh, just maybe how hard he's pushing within the Executive, do, do you have any indication or evidence that he's not pushing hard? Uh, to, to have the executive come to an agreement, or is that just a, a view that you hold yourself? Well, the the issue I think is that he brought a paper in in April. It wasn't it um, it was uh, didn't reach agreement. He brought a paper again in May. Um, the question I suppose becomes when that paper wasn't considered in May 2020. How strongly did uh, he push for that paper to be discussed after that? I don't know the machinations of, of the Northern Ireland Executive. What I can say is the Minister of Health seems to have done a good job on a number of fronts, and he's been very firm in making sure that issues of public health have gotten to the executive's agenda around the pandemic. So there's plenty of evidence where the minister has strongly pushed to ensure that 
public health issues are discussed in the executive. In this case, this particular paper didn't get an airing despite it having been with the executive since the 6th of May. I, I don't know the machinations why, but that's, that's an observation that I can offer. Okay, thank you, Commissioner. Chair, can I just check before okay. if there's anything? I've rather monopolized this, but if anything either David or Rhiannon want to say or think that I've missed on under any of this. Yeah, checking checking with both of you there if you want to indicate. David, I think you're indicating you're okay. Rhiannon, you okay? Great. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Okay. Okay. Well, listen, uh, Commissioner, Commissioner David and Rhiannon, thank you very much for your both of your uh, reports to the committee. I think those are very, very helpful. Um, thank you for your attendance here this morning and assisting us in relation to um, the provision of services and in relation to the bill that is in front of the committee for consideration at the minute. We appreciate your input and I, I would like to wish you all the very best and uh, thank you for coming this morning and into just we've just arrived at the afternoon. So Great. thank you and good luck to you all. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. Thanks, Chair. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Okay, members, I'm going to take a short break there just to um before we go on to our next session with Amnesty. If we could come back there in nine minutes at, at twelve ten, members, please we'll resume at twelve ten. Thank you. And if I could ask Clerk just to suspend broadcasting for the purpose of that break. That's us now, Chair. Colin, that's us back again. Okay, and are you hearing me okay there, Keith? Hearing you grand. And we are quoted? Yes, we have the members there and the next uh, set of witnesses are available as well. Okay, thank you. So members, we are, and we are back in broadcasting live, Keith, are we? Yep. Yes, thank you. We are. Thank you, Clerk. Okay, members, so we will now resume our committee session today and our item eight now is a further briefing on the severe fetal impairment abortion, abortion amendment bill. And uh, this is a briefing from Amnesty International and Informing Choices. Item eight uh, is, I refer members there to the written submissions that we received at tab 8.1 of your pack. So I'd now like to welcome to committee this morning, Ms. Grania Taggart, who is a campaigner with Amnesty International. Good afternoon, Rania. Are you able to hear me okay? I can indeed. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Grania. And we're also joined by Mr. Rory Rowan, who is Director of Advocacy and Policy, Informing Choices NI. Are you able to hear us, Rory, okay? I can, Chair. Thank you. Okay, well, Tafalcha uh, Rov, Birch, uh, you're both very welcome to committee here today. And I'd now like to maybe ask you to brief the committee and then we will go into some question and answers with committee members and yourselves. So I'll go back to yourself, Grania, or is it Rory, or who is leading on the briefing this morning? Yes, uh, thank you, Chair. I'll begin. Um, thank you to you and to the committee for the opportunity to be here today to present our evidence on this private member's bill. Our comments will be brief, you have our evidence, and we wish to obviously explore with you the issues that the bill presents in detail. So I think the best way to do that is obviously through questions. I'm going to begin by saying a few words, and then I'll hand over to my colleague Rory to make some reflections on the current position from Informing Choices perspective as the central access point for early medical abortions. 
The legislation passed at Westminster and subsequent regulations produced incorporate into law the findings of an inquiry undertaken by the United Nations Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, CEDAW for short, into access to abortion in Northern Ireland. That inquiry found that women and girls here were being subjected to grave and systematic violations of rights. It concluded that restrictions affecting only women from exercising reproductive choice and resulting in them being forced to carry to term almost every pregnancy um, resulted in mental and physical suffering that constituted violence against women. The report made 13 recommendations and that included the provision of abortion in cases where there is a severe fetal impairment. Human rights standards are resolute that women's ability to exercise reproductive autonomy, control their reproductive lives and decide if, when and how to have children is essential to the full realisation of rights. So I'll get straight to the issue that the bill addresses. In some cases, women and girls may decide to terminate their pregnancies following a diagnosis of fetal impairment. Human rights standards are unequivocally clear that this must be provided for. And it is important to note that UN treaty bodies have not limited their calls for access to abortion to cases in which fetal, um, fetal impairments uh, such as stillbirth or death immediately after birth is a virtual certainty. So what we commonly discuss as fetal fetal impairments. As with all abortions, a woman's decision may be based on myriad factors, including their own physical health um, and mental health and well-being, the fetus's chance of survival and the options to treat and care for a child born with the anticipated health conditions. The decision whether to continue a pregnancy following a diagnosis of fetal impairment must lie solely with the woman and the woman's right to health must always be at the centre of and inform medical decisions on terminating a pregnancy. Treaty bodies have consistently found that denying access to abortion, including in cases of severe fetal impairment, not only undermines reproductive autonomy, but it violates rights to privacy and equality, alongside rights to life, health and freedom from torture or ill treatment. The CR CRPD and indeed all human rights bodies have been very clear that abortion should be available in cases where there are those fetal impairments. And I refer the members to the joint statement in 2018, which um, said that access to safe and legal abortion, as well as the related services and information, are essential aspects of women's reproductive health. And that access to these services is a prerequisite to safeguarding women's rights to life, health and equality before the law and equal protection of the law non-discrimination, information, privacy, bodily integrity and freedom from torture and ill treatment. So in considering the, the impact that a, a law proposed such as this would have, it's important that we have conversations that are based in reality of how and when women access abortions. We don't have a comprehensive picture here yet, but if we look to England and Wales, 91% of all abortions provided in 2019 occurred within the first 12 weeks of pregnancy, whereas abortions performed after 24 weeks account for 0.1% of the total figure. And while that number is very small, all cases would have involved very complex clinical and personal decision making. So any moves to deny abortions here on grounds of severe impairment will not only not be human rights compliant, nor would it be compatible with the legal obligations mandated by Parliament, and neither would it stop them from happening. 
It will, however, roll back our rights and bring us back to a position where women and their families already facing trauma and distress are forced to travel to access essential health care, which should be locally available. Further, at a practical level, it's often not possible to distinguish between a severe fetal impairment and one which could prove fatal. And we bring members' attention to the reference in our evidence to a recent study in the south of Ireland, which looked at coronial inquests into stillbirths and neonatal deaths and concluded that, and I quote, less than half of the anomalies could be classified as fatal, yet all were fatal. And the legislation that we have in the south, if we look there, are following repeal of the Eighth Amendment, it only provides for fatal fetal impairments. And we can see the harm that this creates as a consequence of that law. Doctors fear getting that fatal diagnosis wrong and ultimately it forces women to travel, um, including women with conditions that are not quite fatal enough, um, but may well prove to be fatal. Um, what we have at the minute is a law which enables our clinicians to do their jobs free from the chill factor experienced under the old regime. They treat It treats each individual pregnancy as just that individual and it gives clinicians and the woman concerned the space in law to make very individual diagnoses and decisions. Every pregnancy is different, every diagnosis is different and every woman's circumstance is different and there are a range of issues that will have to be considered by each woman and the clinician. We trust our clinicians to do their jobs and we trust each individual woman to make the decision right for her and it's not for any of us to prescribe an outcome based on misinformation. It is of concern, therefore, before I hand over to my colleague Rory, that a rollback of rights is being proposed at a time when the priority should be, and certainly the priority that we're working on, should be the implementation of our existing law and the accompanying regulations through the commissioning of services. Members will be aware that the UK Parliament has recently given the Secretary of State the powers to direct commissioning here. What we have at the moment is what Amnesty has termed as a postcode lottery for access to abortion provision and that denial of healthcare is obviously unacceptable and must swiftly be brought to an end and that's something that we are actively working on. So I'll pause there and hand over to my colleague Rory. Thank you. Thank you, Grania. Go ahead, Rory. Go ahead, Hall. Thank you. Um, thank you, Chair. Um, as Grania mentioned in, in her opening remarks, informing choices, we provide the central access point to early medical abortion services in, in Northern Ireland. So this enables people um, to contact a single telephone number uh, where they can receive non-directive information. Uh, pregnancy choices counselling is available if requested uh, and a referral can be made into a local health trust. Um, also, access to post-pregnancy counselling is also available um, through ICNI services. Um, what we've seen in terms of the, the past 14 months since the regulations were introduced is that it's been left to individual trusts and ICNI to absorb the needs of women. And for that reason, and because there has been a failure to commission services, we have seen the services that currently exist struggle to cope. Within the past six months, we have seen the suspension um, of three early medical abortion services within our trusts. Um, and currently, the Western Health Trust um, has no service uh, available. Um, and from the information uh, from the women who we have spoken to directly, that has impacted almost 150 women who have been unable to access local care, uh, which they're legally entitled to under the law. And I'm happy in further questions to, to, to provide more information um, regarding that. Um, in relation to, um, you've previously heard from the Human Rights Commission, they, they took the legal challenge last week in terms of the failure to commission services, um, both Amnesty International and 
um, informing choices jointly intervened in that case um, to highlight the fact that uh, not only are our services limited in Northern Ireland, um, but they're also highly precarious. And that has been and that has been what we've seen in terms of the, the suspension of services um, during during the past year. Um, in terms of informing choices in our service, we have made repeated attempts to to engage the health minister in this uh, issue, both in uh, joint attempts with Amnesty International and, and also in terms of, in relation to the central access point. Uh, we have received no response from the minister um, to date uh, in relation in relation to that service. Um, although I would highlight that he has signposted women in the Northern Ireland Assembly when asked how women should access the service, he has directed people to informing choices, but there has been no engagement uh, with, with the charity and uh, directly with the Minister. Uh, we have had ongoing conversations with the, the Northern Ireland office over the past year to update them in terms of uh, what local service provision exists. Um, and as Grania alluded to in, in her opening remarks, the, the Secretary of State has now taken the power um, to direct um, both um, uh, local bodies and office holders to commission uh, abortion services and they have put on record that they intend uh, to make such a reaction if concrete action isn't taken before the summer months. Um, so that, that direction has not taken place yet, um, but we will await uh, in terms of what may happen uh, in the coming weeks. Uh, but in terms of, of our service, uh, since since we launched in April um, 2020, um, almost 2,500 2, women have self-referred um, into our service. As Grania said, each will have uh, their own uh, their own personal reasons um, uh, for doing so, uh, and, and that's how many we have supported. And I'm happy to to expand on that, but um, I'm keen, um, as is Grania, to to hear the committee's um, questions in the matter. So at this stage, I'll pass over. Okay, thank you, thank you both for that. Um, and I suppose um, uh, we appreciate your your input there orally, and also the the presentation that you have sent through to us. And if, my first question, Grania, is to yourself in relation to um, you. You identified the issue, and we have earlier discussed the uh, the the concerns around screening and the potential inequalities. So, do we do we have sufficient screening at present, in your opinion? And what needs to change in relation to the the uh, provision of screening services in in relation to reproductive rights? Okay. Um, Chair, I, I, we're obviously not a service provider, so we're not in a position to comprehensively speak to um, the, the specific points around screening. What I can say is um, through the, the work that I do and the experience that I have speaking to a number of women who have tried to access services, no, we do not have um, screening in place and no, we do not have adequate service provision in place. What we have are a number of barriers where depending on the part of Northern Ireland that you live in will depend on the access to the service you receive. So as Rory has rightly identified in the Western Trust area is where those who need access to early medical abortions will experience difficulties at the minute. But I think Rory's actually, as a service provider, might be better to pick up on a point on screening. Um, okay. so just, just, yeah, and, yeah, go ahead, Rory. I was just going to say briefly on that point, and I know uh, I'm sure healthcare bodies, which you will hear from, will will speak more extensively um, on this matter. But in relation to to fetal anomaly, uh, it will often be um, a diagnosis will often be made um, in around the 20 week scan. Um, so what that will do, um, and following that diagnosis, it may not be conclusive, and, and future tests may be needed. Um, and 
that is why um, um, we have uh, we have opposed uh, one of the reasons why we're opposing this bill because it is putting uh, a time a time pressure on women uh, who are faced with a very difficult diagnosis, which in what uh, it often is is a very much planned and wanted pregnancy, um, and that is the experience that we uh, we have come across in terms of the provision of our counselling services um, that the people feel under that time pressure in terms of making a decision. Um, so they need to be given the space. Uh, and the time to, so that they can have all the information that they can make that informed choice. Um, and that is why in terms of ac limiting access post 24 weeks in these very small number of cases would have a devastating impact in terms of, of those women. Um, and in terms of time pressures in general, it's something that we come up against um, um, currently in the fact that our, our law provides for abortion on request up to 12 weeks in pregnancy. In practice, we only have abortion in place in the first 10 weeks of pregnancy. And that time pressure is putting pressure on women to make a decision uh, before that they may not have the full information or before they're ready to do so. So in terms uh, in terms of um, going forward, we need to, to allow people to have that space uh, to, to get all the information they need, to get the testing that they need um, and to make that decision for themselves. Thank you. And uh, just uh, I wonder, could you elaborate then on the issue in relation to the Western Trust? And the committee has written to the Western Trust in relation to this and actually has has written again following the response which we received, which we thought wasn't really um, sufficient. So can you tell us uh, what the, what that impact is uh, in terms of in terms of where services don't exist or are withdrawn? Extrapolate yeah. that for us, please. Yeah, so certainly. So in terms of, uh, as I'd highlighted in the in the last number of months, we have seen um, three trusts suspend services. So the first um, trust to do so was the, the Northern Health Trust. They suspended their services in uh, the beginning of October of last year, um, and they didn't resume until um, the beginning of January. Um, there was a short suspension as well in the Southeastern Trust um, between the beginning of January and the start of February. And in terms of the Western Trust, it, it is the one that currently remains suspended. Um, ICNI were unable to refer into that service from the, the 23rd of April, and it remains uh, suspended to date. In terms of the, the impact that has on women, because all trusts um, uh, so have a lack of resources at present because of the failure to commission services, uh, it means that there is not uh, the provision uh, for a woman to access an early medical abortion in another trust area in Northern Ireland. Um, so that will mean when the services were previously suspended in the Northern and Southeastern Trusts and currently the situation in the, the Western Trust is that there are three options available to women if they have made the decision to end a pregnancy. Uh, one option would be to travel to, to Great Britain through the, the UK government funded process. The, section, uh, the second option would be to travel to the, the south of Ireland and pay privately. That would be somewhere in the region of around €450. Euro. And the third option would be to access the medication online uh, from, a, from an online telemedicine provider. Um, so that would be the, the situation to date. In terms of the number of women impacted by that, I, I'd mentioned in my opening remarks, um, we have spoken to almost 150 people across those three trusts during the suspension um, who have requested access to abortion and that there has been no local service which we have been able to refer into. Um, and and, and that, that number will continue to arise um, with, uh, with the suspension um, in the Western Trust. 
um, in relation to the conversations that I've had directly with women uh, in this situation when informed of, of those options. Uh, many view the, the, the idea of travel, particularly um, during COVID. And, and if you think about the dates that were provided uh, for the suspension of those services um, uh, dating back before Christmas and, and in terms of the, the Southeastern Trust when we moved into a, a new period of lockdown, uh, many women, uh, when, when, when travel was discussed, said that that was not practical or feasible. And quite frankly, a number of women referred to that option as scary. Um, they didn't wish to do it. And therefore, the vast majority of people, when, when given um, the options um, that are now available, if services aren't available locally, will opt to access the medication online. That wouldn't necessarily have been their preferred option, but they feel that they've been left with no choice. And it is very distressing for women when they've heard um, that information that a service isn't available, because for many of them, they the first time they will know of that information is when they speak with informing choices. It's very upsetting to, to be told that. And often women will ask why, if the law has changed, our service is not in place. Um, so that that is the situation in terms of um, in the Western Trust, in terms of the, that service being suspended uh, for the past year, that was being sustained by by a single doctor who was working without any support. Uh, and it got to a stage where that uh, where that was no longer sustainable. Um, so the doctor um, so the situation currently in the Western Trust is they they are seeking to uh, recruit additional doctors, nurses and, and clerical staff. Um, uh, I have received no information um, that the service will resume in, in the coming days. I, I do. Uh, I, I am in contact with the Western Trust, but um, I, I foresee that suspension uh, continuing for, for a number of weeks. Um, and if that changes, um, I, 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 I to the committee to that as soon as possible. But that is the situation mm -hmm. Brian currently. And I think just to, you know, just to add, so, sorry, Chair, and build on what Rory has said there. So, I mean, what that really highlights is the very, um, the, the very, I suppose, negative position that our trusts are being left in here, actually, by the lack of commissioning and by the lack of action taken by the health minister. And until such times as the Secretary of State exercises the powers that he now has, the reality is that these services are lawful. So people can't lawfully be refused the service, but nor are our trusts being given the resource through a commissioning process to actually provide the services that legally they are required now to provide. So it's a very precarious position that our trusts find themselves in also. And that's why, as you know, as Amnesty and Informing Choices, you know, we have been pressing very hard both the Department of Health and the NIO to very quickly remedy this. It shouldn't have been left to obviously a third sector organisation through ICNI working with the trusts to try and very quickly in a pandemic create some form of pathways to lawful health care. You know, we flagged um, as soon as obviously the pandemic hit and we realised the impact that that would have on women, that travel was not going to be a safe or viable option for the majority of women. And indeed, government's own advice was not to travel, it was to stay at home. So that obviously there was a direct, you know, contradiction there. So the position that we see in the Western Trust at the minute and the position that we've seen and the other two trusts that Rory has referred to, this situation will continue until such times as we get these commission these services properly commissioned and properly resourced. Okay, thank you. And just finally, and that sort of leads me on then to that, um, there was mentioned there post-pregnancy counselling. What are the other services that need to be put in place here um, in terms of those pathways and supports, other supports and other services that need to, uh, that need to be addressed? 
Well, in term uh, in terms of ICNI, as as I touched on, we do provide both pregnancy choices counselling. So if a woman uh, is undecided about uh, about what option to take, which is continuing with the pregnancy, adoption, or abortion, um, if she wishes to consider those options um, further, um, the counselling support is is available, um, and we also provide post pregnancy counselling and our post-pregnancy counselling uh, will deal uh, with pregnancy loss and that could be in relation to abortion, stillbirth or miscarriage. Um, it will deal with um, um, a traumatic birth, uh, postnatal depression, postnatal anxiety, so any um, any previous pregnancy experience including the, the, the current pregnancy that a woman may be, may be contacting us um, in relation to. Um, in relation to, to, to that service, um, we do receive some funding from the Department of Health to provide counselling provision, uh, but it is nowhere near enough to cope with the, the level of demand that we're experiencing, particularly uh, following taking on the, the central access point. Um, so, so just to, to update the committee on that, um, and the, the central access point launched in, in April um, 2020. Um, after that launch, our, our request for post-pregnancy counselling increased by 85%. Um, and we're currently delivering um, at least 20 counselling sessions a week. In order to be able to provide that level of support, we have had to seek um, uh, an additional grant, a community grant, which we have had to see seek ourselves. Um, that is a short-term solution to allow us to provide additional counselling support, and, and that funding will, will run out in a number of months. Um, but that that is how we've sustained that to date. And even in terms of the additional funding that that we uh, that we have um, we have sought, um, we still have a, an increasing waiting list for post-pregnancy counselling. So uh, we previously would not have operated with any waiting list. Uh, now, uh, after taking on the central access point, we now have a waiting list of in excess of twenty people, um, and that that waiting list um, could be uh, between two to three months for 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 a post-pregnancy session. Uh, beginning obviously we will we will always provide a pregnancy choices counseling session within a number of days because that's a time sensitive issue um, but in terms of the post-pregnancy counseling that demand has increased um and it's it's increased and, and currently we don't have the level of uh, of funding to sustain um that supports so us certainly going forward um in a commission service or even in terms of short-term funding uh from the department of health we would need uh, additional counseling support at the minute we are operating with with one counselor we have moved to to telephone counseling which has been beneficial because it means um there's access for for everyone uh, across northern ireland people find that that a convenient form of, of counselling and uh, we benefited from uh, from our counselling services coordinator and um, previously um, uh, developed the lifeline service and managed it for 10 years so has vast experience of delivering telephone counselling and speaking to, to people in crisis on the telephone um, but as I said we, we have one counsellor we have growing waiting lists um, um, for, for that counselling support um, and, and, that, and further funding will be needed to, to meet that demand. Uh, and that is something that we have highlighted to the minister um, going back um, uh, as far back as summer last year. And also okay. just to okay, flag, we you. do need um, better support services in place for women who choose to continue with the pregnancy where there is a severe or a fatal impairment diagnosis. I've worked with women who, um, one woman in particular, who delivered a fetus that unfortunately um, died in utero. And they were referred to the SAN service, which is a fantastic service, does fantastic work. And they do get some um, obviously benefit from that. But it is not the same specialism as what would be required when you are someone who is, you know, faced a wanted pregnancy and has faced these very specific set of circumstances. So we do need something that is much more tailored to equip with women in these very complex and difficult circumstances. Thank you. Okay. Thank you both. I'm going to go to members then. So I'm going, first of all, I have a, 
I have the following members, um, Paula Bradshaw, then Jonathan Buckley, then Jerry Carroll, and then Carol McKillen in that order at present. So go ahead, Paula, please. Um, thank you, Chair, and thank you, panel, for your contribution this morning. I, I just want to place on record my thanks to you both, um, in particular, Informing Choices NI, for picking up um, where others have, have failed over the last year. I, I did acknowledge uh, and bulk at the Health Minister referring people to you, knowing that you were not getting properly funded, so I, I thought that was rather in bad taste. Um, you, you mentioned there around the post-pregnancy counselling that you provide, and I'm just wondering um, to what degree do you feel that those women who are uh, uh, accessing it would feel less of a, a stigma and a taboo around having access to a termination if abortion services were properly commissioned here? Thank you. Well, I think in terms of the, the post-pregnancy counselling, it's, it's raised a number of, of issues, Paula, and I think um, I, I highlighted the benefits of telephone counselling. One thing that has been raised in relation to telephone counselling is previously, um, when, when we were working in the office space and people were, were accessing face-to-face counselling, um, our office was picketed on a daily base, uh, basis by people who, who are opposed to abortion. Um, so women uh, were having to walk through that in relation to accessing counselling support. Um, that counselling support may not have necessarily been in relation to abortion, as I said, our post-pregnancy counselling um, relates to, to all pregnancy experiences, but we know the difficulties women faced in terms of, of accessing the service when they had to, to walk through protesters. Um, so so that, that's one barrier that certainly, that certainly exists, and in terms of that's a barrier that exists in terms of women accessing abortion services in general when, when they're being picketed um, throughout, um, throughout the trust areas. Um, so that's one thing, and in terms of, I suppose, telephone counselling um, is, is one way around that but there will be people who who, who wish to access face-to-face -face support um so 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 we will need to see moves there in terms of safe access zones um to to remove that stigma and so that women who uh, who who wish to access counseling support um can access it um without uh without that fear of being re-traumatized um or or have that stigma uh walking through through a line of picketers um on their way to receive counseling support um in general what the the counseling service has brought up um in terms of the last year um, in terms of maybe one in 30 people who have been referred into an early medical abortion service may come back for for post-pregnancy counseling um, and, and in terms of the the reasoning for for doing that um, a, a pregnancy will bring up um, other stresses in people's lives and it will bring them to the fore. And one of the things that we have noticed in the past year in terms of providing the post-pregnancy counselling is that one third of clients have mentioned previous um, sexual sexual assault. Um, and, and, and that has taken a number of sessions in terms of um, uh, long-term support. And that is one thing that we have always done is we will never put a limit in terms of the number of sessions uh, for counselling. The counselling is free to access and it's to give uh, women that space um, to, to avail of the service for as long as, as they may need it. Um, the other the other point in terms of why people may access um, support is any pregnancy experience may bring up previous childhood events, uh, previous um, previous relationships with their parents, and again, that is something that is dealt through uh, in the counselling service. So that that is what we're currently experiencing, um, Paula. That demand, as I, I'd mentioned, uh, has been increasing. We've had to we've had to seek additional funding, um, and um, and unfortunately, and um, because the services have been commissioned, we haven't been able to to bring in more counsellors uh, and provide that level of support. That's um, can I just add that, you know, when we talk about stigma, a commissioned service will, of course, address stigma because the law and the law changing was just the first step in this. A commissioned service will embed 
and normalize this healthcare within our obviously our health system here and that's absolutely essential to happen because the decision to terminate a pregnancy is just one experience that a woman will have in her reproductive lifetime and the sooner we get to a place where this healthcare is embedded um, in our healthcare service here within the NHS here um, the better because what it will do is send a message to society that this is a perfectly normal healthcare service for a woman to avail of so this the law was the change and was the first step in this but a commissioned resource service is absolutely essential to combating the stigma that we know has prevailed here for too long, particularly when we've just moved from a place where we had a virtual near total ban on abortion and all of therefore the resultant stigma around this issue, both for clinicians and obviously for women and those who need access to these services. Thank you, Gronje. Yeah. Um, like my second question then is, is in relation to, you put in the paper there around commissioning abortion services, Will require unbiased information and not sorry unbiased information and non-biased counselling. And I suppose if you watch the um, first debate we had on this um, severe fetal impairment bill, there were some accusations that some of the healthcare professionals had been almost promoting abortion to those women who maybe had a diagnosis of severe fetal impairment, and a lot of women felt that they were under pressure. I know that a lot of clinicians were deeply hurt when they heard that, and I'm just wondering what we can do to ensure that going forward, those sort of accusations cannot arise again, um, and so that there's proper frameworks and guidance in place. Thank you. Do you want me to begin, Gronje? Or, or, um, yeah, yeah, I'll begin. I, I, so in terms of just speaking back before before the law changed, that certainly would not have been our experience um, in terms of um, in terms of information. Right, what what we would experience very often as healthcare professionals, the chill factor in relation to the law because there was criminalisation, felt that they couldn't provide any information in relation to to abortion to women, and often. Uh, uh, when, when people came um, to access our counselling services, that was often their experience as well. So certainly, I, I, our experience previously would have been the exact opposite in terms of in terms of healthcare professions because they were working in an environment where where, where a healthcare issue was criminalised. They felt that they couldn't sometimes um, give the information that was required. Um, in terms of um, in, in terms of going forward, in terms of um, in terms of support. Any woman who I would speak to in relation to a pregnancy, I will always begin a conversation by saying that there's three options available to you, and that's continuing with the pregnancy, adoption or abortion. And I will always do so because in terms of ICNI, we would never want to assume either what a woman's personal circumstances is or what their current thinking is. And in terms of the people who are coming through to the central access point, there will there will be over 10% in terms of the first year um, who call through who will not be referred on. To, to a local healthcare trust. Um, people may initially come on, um, they, they may seek the information because that, that information isn't publicly available in terms of where people access services. So they may come on initially to find out the information. They may want to take that information back and speak to, to a family member or a friend. Um, they may call back in several days, they may not. Um, they may decide to continue with the pregnancy. So in terms of, uh, of that, that, that non information that will always be at the forefront of, of our services and um, that, that we have uh, no investment in terms of the decision-making process that's entirely up to the woman thank you just just a final point share I suppose um, you just raised that there are area around um, access accessing information on the trusts websites I know some of them do but others don't and I think it's deeply disappointing that not all trusts actually put that information up there but that's that's for another day thank you Thank you, Paula. And going then to Jonathan Buckley. Jonathan, go ahead, please. 
Thank you, Chair, and thank you, panel. I suppose probably I've listened and I've heard much about being champions of rights, but very little mention to no mention uh, about being a champion for the rights of the unborn child. Um, you know, I've, I've heard a lot about the requirements within CEDAW. It is worth remembering that the preamble of the UN Convention of the Rights of the Child states that the child needs special safeguards and care, including appropriate legal protection before as well as after birth. Uh, and when we look here specifically at Northern Ireland, the law in Northern Ireland recognises a specific offence of child destruction at the point of viability in Section 25 of the Criminal Justice Act, Northern Ireland, 1945. Uh, we can test uh, the ruling that an unborn child has no right to life. So suppose what I would ask, and our Vice Chair asked it in the previous session, so I would ask it to the panel here today. How does the view that the unborn child doesn't have any right of life under human rights law contrast with equivalent protections under the Criminal Justice Act? Great, so thank you um, for that question. Um, you, you're absolutely right to point to obviously the preamble of the UNCRC. However, um, what has been neglected there is the fact that the UNCRC, like many other um, treaty bodies who work on this issue, have also expressed concerns around lack of access to abortion services and that children, um, girls obviously, as well as women, must have full access to these services. Um, the 1945 Criminal Justice Act is something that we as Amnesty flagged, obviously, during the negotiations and when um, the law was being changed. Um, but it, the, pardon me, but the, the human rights law and the law that we now have through CEDAW and the um, UN treaty bodies are consistently clear that the right to life and all human rights do not extend prenatally. They apply from birth. And if we look to, for example, the UDHR, which all of our human rights instruments are born from, the line is that all human beings are born free and equal. When there are attempts made to introduce notions of fetal personhood, that invariably leads to the rights of women being denied and being restricted. And that's where our treaty bodies have been very clear that that cannot happen. What we now have are laws that protect and promote and respect the rights of women to make what are very private and personal decisions. See, I suppose your language around protect and promote and defend those, those rights to me are discriminatory in the very instance that I uh, recognise and, and support the right to life of the unborn child. So I would say to you, aren't we sending mixed messages about the legal protections we offer the most vulnerable in society? No, we're, um, I, I don't think that we are because the right. I appreciate your position and that you are entitled to obviously hold those views. However, what we have to refer to and what we as Amnesty work to is the international human rights instruments and what they say access should be. At no point has any rights extended prenatally. They all apply from birth. The 1945 Act is obviously a very outdated piece of legislation and we could talk about obviously that that may well need to be addressed as well. But there's no conflict between that and our most recent law, which obviously changes the legislation around abortion to provide for abortion in the circumstances that the members are familiar with, which includes the severe impairment that this bill deals with. Do you support the principle of disabilities discrimination legislation? Of course. Well, on that basis then, uh, why do you not support the principles contained within the bill? Because I work to the international human rights framework on what it says access should be. 
And when we begin, as I said, to introduce notions of fetal personhood, you eliminate and erode and remove the rights of women. And human rights bodies are clear that we cannot allow that to happen because, of course, then that would not respect the rights of women. So and the basis of what you're saying, you would suggest then that uh, those unborn children should have no right, uh, no right to be protected from uh, being discriminated on based on a disability, no right to life. I, I'm failing to see how that is consistent with uh, your basis in which you outlined in the presentation about being a champion for rights and how those two points uh, are not in conflict with one another. Well, I appreciate your view that you may wish to extend rights prenatally. Um, that's not the position of amnesty. The position of amnesty is that rights apply from birth. And I, I've been very clear and unequivocal about that. There are, you will see in our evidence and in our submission, of course, we are concerned with disability discrimination in our society. And we have outlined very clearly steps that our governments can and should take to address that. But the answer is never to remove choice and what are very obviously specific circumstances. As I've mentioned, every pregnancy is different, every diagnosis is different, and we need to create, which is what we have, space in law for women to obviously make those decisions. I, I believe personally, okay. you know, my party position and, and many within my community who have lobbied me heavily on this issue, um, and, and I respect that we can have this in a respectful forum via, via this committee meeting. Um, but I believe it's completely wrong to say that the issue of discriminatory provisions permitting abortions in cases of severe uh, disability can be resolved uh, by a full decriminalisation of abortion. Uh, could you Would you address that issue in relation to your viewpoint? So decriminalisation was necessary because we don't criminalise healthcare. Um, we had a situation where our healthcare professionals were operating in a climate of fear under the threat of criminal sanction prosecution, where women were faced with prospects of life imprisonment. So by not decriminalising this healthcare, we would have created a situation where the chill factor that was experienced by healthcare being criminalised would have continued. We're obviously the first part of the UK and Ireland that has this healthcare decriminalised. That was absolutely the right approach to take. It's what our human rights bodies call for. Um, what we now have is um, legislation that does not um, discriminate, but what it actually does do is it chimes with human rights instruments which say that where there are cases of severe impairment, not just fatal, that we need to provide access to those services. Now, the ways in which you get to, obviously, to that point can vary. Um, certainly what has to be at the centre of all of this is the woman's right to health. In relation to, you, you may have listened in in the previous presentation around the debate surrounding conscientious objections, I would be keen to hear your opinion in relation to the Commission's desire to see the definition of conscientious objection defined. Do you as an organisation, uh, indeed personally, uh, recognise that the risk of restricting the exemption only to direct abortion services rather than, again, than auxiliary functions, may unduly infringe those freedom of conscience and indeed religion and how this is affecting upon uh, member and placing members of our health service in an extremely difficult position, given their own viewpoints. So I haven't um, watched the previous session, so I can't comment, obviously, on what the Human Rights Commission have said until I obviously see and consider that myself. On conscientious objection, what I can say, though, is that it is right that that um, attaches only to the procedure itself. And it's not only the view of amnesty on that. This has already been tested in the courts, and I'm not sure if you were referred to 
what's commonly known as the Glasgow Midwives case, where the Supreme Court were very clear that that's where conscientious objection should attach to the procedure itself, not the administrative end, obviously, of these procedures in terms of booking appointments, etc., or managerial, you know, aspects in terms of management of boards, etc., to the procedure itself. And absolutely, we recognise um, that there will be people who want to object for reasons of conscience to them taking part in a procedure and they should absolutely be protected in doing that. They are protected um, with that. So what we have here in terms of conscientious objection is in line with the rest of the UK. You may have listened to and Jonathan Jonathan, just just before Jonathan, before you before you go any further, I do want to bring matters back because we have other members waiting to come in. I do want to bring matters back to the submission on the SFIA rather than the earlier session with the Human Rights Commissioner. So I, I want I want uh, I want if you can if you can go with a final question there in relation to no, the bill, no, Sure, please. look, you know, if there's other members, I'm happy to allow them to, to come in now. Thank you. Okay, thank you. So going then to Jerry Carroll. Jerry, go ahead, please. Thanks, Chair. Thanks, Granny and Rory, for your presentation and also the echo Paula's comments, your 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 work and just to put on uh record once again my uh, total opposition to people picketing, protesting, uh services and centres providing either uh access to uh terminations or, or advice uh, on how people can get access. So just to say that, uh, and just um, I find it quite uh, uh, hypocritical and ironic that uh, parties that are uh, the work integral to implementing a vicious welfare program with targeted people with disabilities, uh, the, the gumption to talk about uh, standing up for people with disabilities, but um, I maybe leave that for uh, for another day. Um, just in terms of uh, the criminalisation. Um, uh, of abortion in cases of fetal impairment with, with the aims of the bill would obviously have passed to that. Um, maybe Grandy can maybe answer this. Um, I mean, what other countries globally um, uh, do uh, or have such a policy and practices uh, in place? Because we're often presented and told that we're living in a, a modern, forward, brilliant, wonderful country. Uh, but to me, this kind of uh, form of legislation would smack of something that uh, is... Uh, reminiscent and uh, you know in line with countries which are not uh, compliant or respecting uh, of human rights and are quite regressive and oppressive. So appreciate it's maybe a question for Amnesty uh, International uh, beyond the north. But um, if Grania, if you have any indication of, of uh, where this would fit in with globally, that would be uh, um, that would be helpful. Thank you. Okay. So previously, the law that we had was amongst the most restrictive globally. It carried the harshest criminal penalties in the whole of Europe. And what we see in different countries, particularly in European countries, is that abortion, like what we now have provided for here, is provided in cases of serious impairment and fatal impairment without gestational limit. So we are now in a position where we have much stronger, robust legislation in line with many other European countries. Now, there's always the obviously the exception to that. So we have countries like Poland and others which are obviously rolling back, you know, rights, making that more restrictive and have um, near total bans, obviously, or total bans in some circumstances, like the, the experience that we've just come from. But we are now much more in keeping with, um, I suppose, not only just European countries, but, you know, where there have been global efforts to realise women's full reproductive rights. So we are now in obviously a much stronger position than where we've come from, where we had the most, amongst the most restrictive laws globally. 
Thanks, thanks for that, Grania. Uh, another question is, I mean, is there any evidence or, or anecdotal indication that uh, putting the 24-week limit may actually force uh, women to uh, proceed with a termination when they may not have wanted to, in the sense that uh, being unaware of the, the, the severity or, or the detail of the diagnosis with the difficulty uh, of the uh, of the time limit, or being unaware of the, the support mechanism in place for um if they could t- decide or wanted to continue with the uh, pregnancy. So is there any indication that you know, the, the sponsor of the bill is kind of presenting this bill as a way to kind of reduce and stop uh, terminations, but is there any indication that uh, with the, the time limit uh, installed, it could actually lead to maybe some women, uh, maybe an increase in some, in some levels? Yeah, so certainly, I mean, it goes back to the points, you know, that I referred to in my opening comments and also some of what Rory has said and what we have in our written evidence, which is, you know, beyond 24 weeks accounts for, and we have to look to England and Wales as the nearest comparator because we don't have that complete picture for here yet, but, it, you know, 0.1%. So you're talking about a very, very, very small number of abortions that will happen beyond 24 weeks. Nonetheless, the reason we need access beyond 24 weeks is because those cases will be very complex. They will involve, obviously, a lot of um, complex clinical decision making as well as personal decision making. The way it works at the minute in terms of like the scans that are available to women here, and as Rory mentioned, it's usually at the 20 week scan when some diagnoses will obviously be will be made through obviously what um, our clinicians are able to see. But it is often the case that further diagnostic tests will need to be made available. And we need to allow, obviously, the time for that to happen because it's only once those diagnostic tests have taken place and once women and clinicians have a full picture of what the diagnosis is, that then ultimately a woman can take a decision on what's best for her in those circumstances. If we try to move to a place where we restrict that to 24 weeks, what we effectively do is force women to make those decisions a lot quicker when otherwise what they might want to do is obviously wait for the results of those further diagnostic tests and also to get a better understanding of things that like, you know, services that are available in the community, you know, obviously for support, you know, what healthcare would be available by way of treating the fetus if they carry the term and obviously deliver. You know, there's all of those complex issues that have to be considered. And that's why human rights standards and why our legislation and we push so strongly for there not to be the 24 week limit where we're talking about these cases of severe and fetal impairment. I'm not sure if Rory wants to add something there. I suppose just, I'd just like to comment briefly on, on the broader point around decriminalisation and why it was so vital, because as I touched earlier in terms of the, the impact of the suspension of services, the early medical abortion services is having. If you look at, uh, say, for example, abortion had not been decriminalised and you think of the situation with p- people currently would face living in the Western Trust and have previously faced in, in the Northern and Southeastern, um, they've said, as I've highlighted, that travel it has been impractical. Sometimes it would have been near impossible during COVID to travel. Um, so what their, their only option has been, because the service hasn't been available locally, is to access the medication online. They would be criminalised for doing so if, if that law was still in place, um, yet provision should be available in Northern Ireland. And in terms of that was something that, that we always came up with in terms of our counselling service, because in, in a position where abortion was, was criminalised, Section 5 of the Criminal Law Act meant that if you were aware of a crime which had over five years imprisonment, there was a potential duty to report that to the police. So if a woman who had taken abortion pills and wished to discuss that confidentially with a counsellor, there could be the obligation to report that woman to the police. And that was something that we often felt that while uh, the availability of abortion pills online was often uh, was often discussed during pregnancy choices counselling, 
up until the decriminalization of abortion, it was rarely, if ever, discussed in post-abortion counseling. And that was because women felt silenced, that they couldn't access the support, and that's why it was so vital, and that's why it was needed. Uh, and if it wasn't in place, um, how would people access services currently? They would have to do so outside of the law. And also what you have in a situation where healthcare is criminalised is that our clinicians are compromised between the position of obviously wanting to do what's best by their patient, but also then with one looking over their shoulder and conscious of the risk of prosecution also, and that will obviously affect the information you know that they would have given. So that's why we needed to have this healthcare decriminalised so that there is that space for our clinicians to freely, uh, to do their jobs basically is the bottom line. Thanks. Just a, a quick uh, final point. Thanks, Fred. And the problem with lack of guidance obviously uh, poses a further problem for, for medical uh, practitioners. But um, if this bill was uh, uh, passed, I mean, what impact would it have on people with dis- disabilities who, you know, uh, do have abortions, do have terminations, uh, and they face obviously greater barriers generally in society, but also getting access to um, health services? So, uh, and I think it is important. I think maybe Grania said it. It's not. Uh, either or. I mean, people should have a, a right to termination, but also a right to proper support services uh, based on what they decide. Uh, so if this bill was enacted, what, what impact would this have on um, uh, women who are disabled or, or, or pregnant people who are disabled? Ronnie, do you want to come in that? Or? Yeah, go ahead. I'll come in after. Yeah, that's fine. No problem. Um, I was gonna, and you alluded to it in your previous question, um, Jerry, in terms of rushed rush decision making and people being forced to make um, a quick decision without the full information, uh, without potentially uh, further tests being done. Um, you, you alluded to the fact that what this bill could do is actually increase uh, the number of abortions taking place at 23 weeks. Um, that could be an unintended consequence of the bill. Uh, and you will have people forced into making that decision when they may not be ready to, a decision which they, they may end up regretting if they haven't got the full information and even if if they do it will constantly be in the back of their mind uh, what if uh, i was able to receive more information what if uh, i had the, the opportunity um, to receive uh, to receive those results and as i said we, we've highlighted this is a very small number not 0.1 percent in England, um, we, we are dealing with um, uh, those decisions which should be left to, to, to women and uh, with their clinicians to, to be given the best uh, possible advice and support. Um, and we shouldn't be forcing people into rush judgments. And also, ultimately, what it will result in is the position we were in before, where women who are experiencing extreme dis- distress and vulnerability are forced to travel. So we'd once again be in a position where we are exporting this healthcare. Um, if um, the member who's proposed the bill and others are obviously committed to addressing disability discrimination, there are a number of ways, obviously, that that, um, that can happen. And we've, we've included some of those examples in our submission. But you're right. And absolutely, I think this is often a neglected part of the debate here. Women who have disabilities obviously access abortion services as well. And again, depending on the nature um, of the disability and the support that will be needed then to that woman, those are also aspects that can delay decision making. And all of this has to be considered. Now, if we're given women a window of between the 20 to the 24 week period, we can see the very obvious pressures that women are going to come under, as well as our obviously our clinicians. So I, th- I think, you know, the bottom line is if we restrict the law and we try to roll back what we've secured, obviously, by Westminster, we're ultimately in a position where we're exporting healthcare again, and that's not acceptable. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. And finally, then, um, Carol Nikhilin. Go ahead, Carol, please. So thank you, Grania Nuri, for your um, presentation today and also your written um, evidence. I mean, uh, unless 
uh, abortion services are commissioned, we are going to be effectively exporting people, and that's the bottom line. Um, so I suppose in relation to the protests, Rory, because I'm conscious that you said you weren't listening to the last session and I raised this issue. Um, for example, what measures do the department, in my opinion, need or will the department need to take to prevent women uh, uh, being harassed, accessing um, health care? Is what my first question. And then second question is, what else can be done to ensure that these services are commissioned? Um, and then my last question is in relation to conscientious objection and use the Glasgow example. Um, have you had any feedback at all, even from the department on any of that? Um, because we just went through a budget exercise, a June monitoring exercise. There's absolutely nothing in there um, that's identified, uh, no intention either as well. Um, so it would just be keen to hear your thoughts on that. Um, I suppose in terms of the beginning, terms of interaction with the department, um, as we'd outlined, we've we've made several attempts to to engage the minister on this issue, both when the the regulations came into to force, um, but also in terms of the the ongoing funding difficulties. This is an unfunded service in terms of what I see and I are running. We we are running it with a with a very small number of staff, um, and and it cannot continue indefinitely, which we've mentioned to the department several times. We we had put that in writing um, on three occasions. Um, last year and again this year we've received no response so in terms of the, the Department of Health there, there's been no engagement uh, with the Minister um, on the matter. In terms of the, the issue in relation to, to protesters I'm, I'm aware that um, that, that there's a private members bill in in the works in terms of this issue from from Claire Bailey and and hopefully we will see that coming before the assembly in in the coming weeks. In terms of generally um, uh, the protests, because we, we are currently accessing our, our current experience of protests outside of our office because most members of staff are, are working from home, but uh, but trusts are experiencing protests outside uh, of their facilities. I've received no information that that those protests are uh, in terms of um, they, they are prevented they are making it difficult for women to access services and what actually may occur is um, one of the the benefits in terms of the the early medical abortion services the availability to contraception afterwards so on, for example on the same day um, of attending um, um, receiving early medical abortion an implant could be inserted uh, in terms of a woman which to access a coil an appointment would be made to come back three weeks later what you might find in terms of that is a woman who's experienced protests going in who then doesn't come back for follow-up appointments so may not uh, may not come back to to gain access to contraception which would intend uh, which would prevent a further unintended pregnancy um so that that is the impact that it's having uh, women are being extremely distressed in terms of 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 those protests um going into the buildings in terms of the the measures that that, that can be taken um as i mentioned I, I know that there's a private members bill in in the offering in terms of of this issue um and that would be something that we would we would support going forward um because in terms of um while we um it previously uh, had made several reports to the police um we did gain one conviction um against a protester who 
followed a, a former member of staff out of our office um, um, and assaulted um, that member of staff. We did gain a criminal conviction there. Um, but even after that conviction, that protester was still able to stand outside our building um, on a daily basis. Um, so we do need we do need added, added legislation. It is impacting women every, every day. No one should face those barriers when when accessing healthcare. And as I said, it's the it's the consequences afterwards in terms of women not wishing to to attend follow up appointments or or actually delay, denying them accessing follow up contraception. And just yeah, so there is obviously the private members bill, which we hope will be taken forward and obviously passed in this mandate. We absolutely do need to see safe access zones, buffer zones. Obviously, they um, they go by different terms, but we do need to see those as urgently as possible. The issue that we have here is that we have to begin to remove the barriers, obviously, to this provision. So as Rory's mentioned, there is the off-putting effect that obviously those um, protests will have. But ultimately, those protests amount to harassment and intimidation of people obviously seeking that health care. And the government, our government, does have obligations in that regard to obviously address that harassment, intimidation and ensure that there aren't barriers to access in this healthcare. So very proactively, our departments, Department of Health and Department of Justice and others could move swiftly to obviously bring the safe access zones in. It also raises though, the issue just with some of what Rory was saying there, and it goes back to something that we called for um, at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, which was the introduction of telemedicine, because that in term, there's the consequences that Rory's mentioned and how they may be off to some women, but there's also women who, for example, in a local area, particularly where protesters are obviously from that local area as well, they may be in a domestic abuse you know, obviously situation, they might obviously need to access early medical abortion services and the safest way for them to do that may obviously be through telemedicine to obviously take those pills at home at a time that is safe for them to do so. So in terms of steps that can be taken now and arguably should sooner is we should as well. We were the only part of the UK and Ireland during this COVID um, pandemic where that hasn't been in place. And I think that's a real damning indictment of the failure to prioritise women's health care during this pandemic. And Rory, I'm assuming that it's the harassment of workers as well. Um, so I would definitely, you know, I'm sure you have done this, but, you know, complain as often as possible um, because people should be able to work and live free from harassment um, and access and health and social care free from harassment as well. Thank you. And just just finally on Thank that you. point, um, Carol, because we have seen uh, the impact in protests, uh, particularly in one uh, one. Um, Trust the Southern Trust um, has was a factor in terms of them moving their service, their early medical abortion service, to a different location. Um, the added pressures that that put on staff in terms of who are already under resourced, having to to find a new premises, and and the work that went into that. So it is having that added impact as well. Thank you. And I just want to briefly check then with Kara. I see your hand is raised there, Kara. Um, were you looking in for a question? Yep. If that's okay, Chair. If there's time. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, please, Kara. Yeah. Thank you, Chair. It's just essentially a follow-up question uh, surrounding adequate uh, screening and equipment here in the north. Uh, I'm just wondering where do you feel we are in Northern Ireland compared to other parts of these islands with regards to availability uh, of modern facilities, systems, and screening. Um, and I note just that it was raised earlier in the previous discussion around um, access to non-invasive prenatal testing, the Iona test, for example. 
uh, and the barriers that are there, financial barriers and how your socioeconomic status um, impacts your, your ability to access the test as it can often cost anywhere from 300 to 570 pounds. So I'm just wondering, uh, how do you think improved screening uh, and access to screening can help women make informed choices at an earlier time? And what more do you feel can be done here in the North on this matter? Thank you. Thank you. In terms of, I suppose, I suppose, just as I'd mentioned briefly in this, Karen, and apologies, is because because we are not healthcare professionals. I suppose my my in depth knowledge on on the screening process is, uh, I, I admit, is is limited. Um, I know in terms of them, I am part of the, the Northern Ireland Abortion and Contraceptive Task Force, which I know was mentioned earlier. I know that they, uh, in terms of they, they have recently produced a, a comprehensive report, which which deals not only uh, in relation to abortion services and and the provision of contra um, conscientious objection but also um, contraception and um, and uh, relationships and sexuality education I know this was one of the the issues raised um, within that report and it was one of the recommendations it's it's not something that's currently in place in in Northern Ireland and, and was highlighted briefly earlier that um, we don't want to be putting financial barriers in place where um, someone with with means can access the service privately whereas um, those who don't um, cannot uh, I think you, you raised the the issue there in terms of the importance of um, making informed choices and in terms of making them form choices you need access to to all the information and therefore we want to see barriers in place in terms of um, uh, people who, who have the means can access that information and those who who can't um, cannot um, but uh, hopefully the committee will will be hearing from medical professionals in the coming weeks who may be able to, to speak more extensively on on that point and just to add that we do expect that the commissioning process will obviously deliver the full suite of screening that will be needed um, as early as possible in in a pregnancy that's great, Grania, and thank okay. you very much for your contributions this afternoon. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Um, so, listen, I also want to, on behalf of the committee, thank uh, both uh, Amnesty and Informing Choices uh, on your written evidence that you have provided to the committee and on your attendance here today to uh, to draw out upon that and to take questions from members around, around this issue. So thank you very much for attending our committee this afternoon, and please take care in the time ahead. Thank you. Thank you. Good chair. Okay. Thank you. Okay, members. Um, thank you um, for that. So, members, we will move. We will move on then to our um, next item on our agenda this morning, which is consideration of some of the uh, SRs. So, we have three health protection SRs in front of us this morning, members. One of these, SR 2021 forward slash 141, has been added as an additional agenda item. Department officials are here today to brief the committee on the provisions of the SRs. I refer members to the paper at tabs 9 to 10 of your pack, and particularly to the clerk's memo at 9.1 and to tab 15 of your tabled papers. We have also received correspondence, which is a tab 11.13 members of the table pack, in relation to the wearing of face coverings at services of worship. So now, uh, from uh, of departmental officials, I would like to welcome Mr. Nigel McMahon, who is Chief Environmental Health Officer in the Department of Health. Um, you're welcome back, Nigel, to the committee. Can you hear us okay? I certainly can, Chair. Can you hear me okay? Yep, we're hearing you there. Thank you, Nigel. We are also joined by Mr. Alistair McGaines, who is Head of Health Protection in the Department of Health. Can you hear us, Alistair? Yes, I can. Thank you. Okay, I heard you there, Alistair, but very faint. But hopefully, 
when we come back to you, that will be improved. And Ms. Ms. Marion McKeever, who's Deputy Principal in the Department of Health. Can you hear us, Marion? Yes, I can hear you. Thank you. Thank you, Marion. And Ms. Jane Holmes, who is works within the COVID recovery within the Executive Office. So I would like to welcome all of our officials to this morning to the meeting. Obviously, we have a range of officials and indeed uh, departments. So if I could ask panel members to, uh, first of all, use headsets where possible to assist with, with, uh, with the sound quality, to remain on mute when you're not contributing, and for one official, if possible, to answer the substantive question. If there's something that absolutely needs added on, we'd appreciate that as well. Um, but if we could ask one official to kind of deal with the substantive issue of the question. So I'll return to yourself, Nigel. Can you outline how, you're, how, you, how you plan between you to brief us? And then we'll go to questions and answers. Thanks, Chair. Um, if you're content, uh, I'll give an overview of the um, context for the th uh, uh, and the detail, the content of the three SRs, and then when we finish that, we'll take questions. Um, and I'll do my best to sort of direct those questions to colleagues if uh, if if they are more appropriate to answer the questions. Is that okay? Yep, that sounds perfect. Thank you, Nigel. Go ahead. Okay. Thank you, Chair and and, and members. Um, so the committee is considering um, three statutory rules today. SR 2021 number 130, which is the fourth amendment to the Health Protection Coronavirus Restrictions uh, Regulations, Northern Ireland 2021. SR 2021 131, which is the second amendment to the Health Protection Coronavirus Wearing of Face Coverings Regulations, Northern Ireland 2020 and SR 2021 number 141, which is the Fifth Amendment to the Health Protection Coronavirus Restriction Regulations, Northern Ireland 2021. So the content context uh, uh, of the regulations we're discussing today was set um, around the executive meeting of the 20th of May, when a number of decisions that had been announced on the 13th of May were reviewed and confirmed at that time uh, of the meeting of the 20th of May, the number of new positive cases and the percentage of positive tests had been steady over the past week. Derry and Straban remained at a much higher level than the other local government districts. The R number, RT, for cases was stable at around one. Hospital admissions for uh, COVID-19 remained at a very low level, so it wasn't uh, uh, possible any longer to provide a valuable, uh, an accurate value for RT based on admissions. There had been a further fall in COVID-19 inpatient numbers and uh, ICU occupancy. Overall, there'd been no persistent adverse impact of the previous round of relaxations on the R number. The committee was briefed on the 6th of May about the previous round of relaxations, uh, which included the reopening of retail business outdoor tourist attractions, self-contained tourist accommodation, and outdoor hospitality, as well as relaxations around the number of people who could meet in their gardens, outdoor sport, band practice, and close contact services. So the detail of the relaxations um, proposed for the 24th of May, along with um, a number of further relaxations were considered by the executive at, at its meetings on the 13th, and then subsequently the 20th of May, when it was agreed that the time was right for um, the significant and carefully considered easements to be made. A further relaxation proposed and considered by the executive at its meeting on the 
meetings on the 13th and confirmed on the 27th of May, commenced on the 31st of May. So just to remind members in terms of the uh, revised process, the executive office lead in terms of um, supporting the pathway to recovery, and that includes uh, TEO receiving and managing proposals for change from the executive departments, um, managing the decision-making process through the executive and facilitating consultation with the other departments on the drafting of amendments if that's required. And all of this work is now supported by a cross-government departmental working group that meets weekly, chaired by the director of the TEO COVID-19 task force team, with membership from all nine um, departments and key stakeholders that include local government and the PSNI. So moving on then to the three SRs. Firstly, um, SR 2021, number 130, the Health Protection Coronavirus Restrictions Regulations, Northern Ireland 2021, Amendment number four, Regulations, Northern Ireland 2021. Um, this is the fourth amendment uh, to the 2021 regulations, and the regulations were made at 8.20 p.m. on the 20th of May. Regulation three permitted the Irish Cup final at Mournview Park uh, football stadium to be used as a logistical and operational learning event on the 21st of May, with up to a thousand spectators in attendance. Regulation four provided an exemption um, from the restriction on the numbers of outdoor gatherings in respect of uh, uh, lawful industrial action. Both these regulations commenced on the 20th of May. The remaining regulations commenced on the 24th of May, allowing further relaxations on hospitality, tourist accommodation, sports, and the number permitted to gather indoors and outdoors in private and in public. So unlicensed and licensed premises can reopen indoors with table service and other mitigations in place. Table numbers inside and outside are restricted to six people from an unlimited number of households, but a maximum of 10 people are allowed to sit together if they're all from one household. The numbers do not include children aged 12 and under. Exemptions are made for events to celebrate weddings and civil partnerships, and social distancing is reduced to one metre in relevant hospitality venues. Otherwise, two metres social distancing remains in place. Indoor visits between two households are permitted, up to a maximum of six people, not including children. Where a household has more than six members, a limit of 10 people applies. Up to 15 persons from no more than three households can gather outdoors in a private garden. The restriction on overnight stays has been removed allowing tourist accommodation to open for groups of up to six people from two households or groups of 10 from one household, from two households in a bubble or from two households where there are more than six members in one or both of them. So essentially the same requirements as for uh, indoors in a private dwelling. Indoor gatherings not including domestic settings are permitted and subject to a risk assessment where the numbers exceed 15. And outdoor gatherings are subject to a limit of 500 with a number of exceptions and a risk assessment where numbers exceed 30. The restrictions on band practice and rehearsals were removed. Indoor sport, except competitive sport, may resume subject to mitigations and all outdoor sport may resume subject to a limit of 500 spectators with a risk assessment where numbers exceed 30. Libraries may reopen subject to mitigations and those responsible for indoor attractions, indoor sports facilities, indoor swimming pools, 
and tourist accommodation must comply with the visitor and attendee information requirements. Moving on then to SR 2021 number 131, the Health Protection Coronavirus Wearing of Face Coverings Amendment Number 2 Regulations, Northern Ireland 2021. This SR is the second amendment uh, this year to the Health Protection Coronavirus Wearing of Face Coverings Regulations, Northern Ireland 2020. The regulations were made at 4 p.m. on the 21st of May and came into operation on the 24th of May. These regulations support the relaxation of restrictions agreed by the executive on the 13th of May. As indoor leisure, entertainment, hospitality and non-essential retail settings are again open to the public, a precautionary approach is being taken requiring the use of a face covering in enclosed public areas of premises to which the public have or are permitted access. This can be relaxed as necessary at some point in the future if the rate of infection remains low and there's no evidence of increased transmission in these settings. In discussion with the executive office, the department reflected the view that had previously been expressed by the committee that a face covering should be required in all indoor settings. The regulations retain the principle that a face covering is required in a relevant place, but have changed the definition of a relevant place from shops and shopping centres and churches to all indoor spaces to which the public have access. The exception for uh, business, um, ex the exemption for businesses and settings that could uh, control access by ticketing or appointment systems was removed as it's incompatible with the principle that people should use a face covering indoors in the context of the easing of restrictions. Other than this, the extant uh, exceptions and reasonable excuses not to wear a face covering were retained. Finally then, um, SR 2021, number 141, the Health Protection Coronavirus Restriction Regulations, Northern Ireland 2021, Amendment number five, Regulations, Northern Ireland 2021. This SR is the fifth amendment to the Health Protection Coronavirus Restriction Regulations, Northern Ireland 2021, and it was made on the 28th of May at 1.30 p.m. This amendment provided a further relaxation under Regulation 11, to enable the full resumption of indoor competitive sport from the 31st of May on the basis that relevant risk assessments are implemented. This decision was ratified by the executive at its meeting on the 27th of May. The regulations also made a number of technical changes which commenced at the time the amendment was made on the 28th of May to include the removal of Regulation 113A which permitted the Irish Cup final at Moorview Park Stadium to be used on the 21st of May with up to a thousand spectators as this event was really uh, no longer applicable. They insert a definition of a shop to provide further clarification to businesses. And this is the same definition that's previously used in the face covering regulations. Provide clarification that up to 500 persons per gathering may attend an outdoor sporting event rather than 500 people in total uh, to attend an outdoor sporting event. Insert an exemption under Regulation 5, which is the restrictions on licensed and unlicensed premises, to enable venues used for marriages or civil partnership ceremonies, such as hotels, to permit a couple or a person to move within the premises to view the venue facilities as permitted under Regulation 9 on gatherings. Um, this was already permitted, but was uh, omitted in error when the indoor hospitality was permitted to reopen. 
on the regulation 17 um, requirement in relation to social distancing amendment number four divided the definition of a relevant place so that requirements were applicable to either a relevant place or a relevant hospitality venue in error the regulation however hadn't included um, relevant hospitality venue to parts of the regulations and therefore a correction was made so i know that's very uh, a rapid run through things chair but i hope that provides you with a summary of both the uh, the context in which the decisions were made at that time and an outline of the content of the regulations um, the next review uh, formal review of the regulations is required to take place on or before the 10th of uh, june and just a reminder obviously that the scope of the, the uh, regulations reaches across all the departments so if we're not able to uh, answer any specific questions uh, from from the committee today i'm quite happy to take those away and come back to the, the committee in, in due course so uh, uh, thank you very much for listening and uh, for, for taking us today and happy to take any questions that the committee may have thank you nigel and i suppose um i suppose we are all very conscious that of how dynamic the situation is that while when you are setting out a context there in terms of the, uh, the ability to ease some of the restrictions. We're already aware that there are significant challenges and dangers emerging as a result of what's now referred to as the Delta variant, previously referred to as the Indian variant. Um, and and I know there's talk of a third wave in England. I think I, 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 by my counting here, we've had a, at least three and possibly four waves to date, depending on, on how you delineate pre-Christmas and, and post-Christmas. But I suppose... Um, I suppose just in general terms, it's more of a comment in general terms. I take it you are looking at uh, analyzing the situation now going forward where, where there may uh, need to be considerable caution taken in relation to any further easements in light of the, the worrying news around this other variant. Absolutely, Chair. Is that, I mean, already, what, is that already in train? Absolutely, Chair. Um, as far as uh, Department of Health is concerned, you know, that's under pretty much constant review as far as the executive is concerned as we mentioned on previous occasions whilst the legislation locks us into a set of dates for a formal review uh, in reality the executive uh, considered the position um, uh, at each of its meetings um, and indeed um, has on occasion um, taken uh, requests for uh, urgent procedure for changes from from any department where there is a suggestion that uh, something needs to be done prior to an executive uh, meeting or, or, or indeed the, the formal review. So yes, very, very much under constant um, review. And you know, the committee will know that obviously a lot of uncertainty about what the impact of the variant might be. Um, and uh, much of that information is publicly available on the daily dashboard in any case, certainly in terms of um, any visible um, uh, impact or signal that's coming through in terms of things like not only case numbers, but but uh, also very importantly for the health service, um, numbers of admissions to hospital and, and indeed numbers of deaths. Yeah, yeah, and I, I have referred earlier actually to the situation where we're still at 103, 104% even in recent days in in spring, summer, and that's, that's extremely worrying. Um, how many cases of the Delta variant do we have currently in the north here, Nigel, are you aware? I'm sorry, I don't have that information available to me at the moment, um, Chair. Okay. Okay, last one from me then, just for now, before I go to members, and we have a number of members indicating, is in relation to, I, I picked up on the, the indoor ban practices. 
have now been um, allowed. So what is the situation with live music? And we have obviously a very, very vibrant, but a very, very challenged arts and culture, music, tradition and, and sector out there who haven't been able to uh, to engage. Sorry, Chair, you've frozen at my end. I didn't hear that. Yeah, I think we may have lost them there, so we'll just try and get them back on, on the line. Sorry, Colm, you were um, frozen there for a while. Am I back with you now? Hear you now, okay, yeah. Okay. So Nigel, I was asking in relation to indoor band practice, and obviously um, there's a there's a massive sector out there in terms of music, arts, and culture who, first of all, for a large long period of time now, have lost their livelihood, but also their their passion or their their hobby or their interest. So now that indoor band practices are are back uh, allowed, and uh, just clarifying, is that the case? And what is the impact on other live music on the ability of other musicians to play their trade or, or indulge in, in, in music? Thanks, Chair. You do raise an important issue, and certainly um, based on you know correspondence and queries that we receive, we're very acutely aware um, of, of the pressures that the uh, industry is uh, under. Um, I would point out that um, the remaining restriction on live music currently only applies to uh, licensed and uh, uh, unlicensed premises um, and that obviously relates to the uh, the impact on, on personal behavior that um, live music tends to have in those kind of scenarios outside of that um, there is no sort of blanket ban or restriction on music um, it's the restrictions around gatherings and numbers and the other mitigations that are required especially around risk assessment and so on that apply. So um, uh, in, in, in theory, you know, uh, um, music events can take place now outdoors. You mentioned indoor um, music practices as well. Um, as long as these are subject to um, the requirements on gatherings indoors and outdoors respectively, um, then then they, they can continue. Um, the live music in hospitality premises is something that uh, the executive does keep under review um, and is currently looking at um, so it is subject to to, um, to ongoing consideration on that front and I know that the um, you'll be aware probably that the communities minister um, has announced you know the establishment of a uh, an arts and culture task force um, to look at how um, certain aspects of uh, culture, arts and entertainment can return in a safe way um, and hopefully that will assist the executives um, consideration of, uh, of when we can reach a point where we can safely go back to live music in hospitality settings. Okay, thank you Nigel. So I'm going to go to members now. I have at this point Paula, Jerry, Jonathan and Alan. So go ahead Paula please. Um, thank you, Chair. I just want to pick up on that last point Nigel made there around the uh, music and licensed and unlicensed premises. She says that it impacts on the personal behaviour of individuals. I suppose I can understand where you would have a big rock concert, but you know, when you're sitting in a, a sort of country pub and somebody's sitting in the corner playing the violin and having a wee sing song, I just don't understand how that can really impact on a person's personal behaviour. Do you want to elaborate on that? Thank you. Thanks, Paula. I mean, it is something that um, 
you know executive members are are considering because it would be true to say that the the ban hospitality uh, to this point has been broad brush it hasn't been sort of nuanced enough to to pick out particular types of music for for example but in broadly speaking in terms of the public health advice um you know we've said it's not that you can't have music it just needs to be recorded music um played at a level where people can engage in normal conversation. Obviously, once you get into a scenario where um, people are having to raise their voice to speak to each other, to lean in to speak to each other, or indeed, you know, are engaging with things like sort of singing along um, or shouting or sort of supporting, which is much more likely with live music, then there's, there's clearly then a, a, an increased risk in terms of spread and, and transmission, and that's really the background to, to the retention of um, uh, the, the restriction to date. Okay, thank you. Um, just moving on um, slightly, um, the, the worrying of face masks in church services, religious services, I, I've been contacted by some um, ministers in my constituency who say, you know, we're socially distant, we're adhering to all the hygiene control and you know there's some elderly members of the congregation who find it very uncomfortable. Is there going to be any movement soon around um, the requirement for people to wear face masks in church? Thank you. I'll take that one, Chair, if that's okay. Um, yep. We have got increased uh, attention on churches recently, but I think in, in the context of a, a wider move to face coverings in indoor settings, I don't believe we've looked at churches specifically now. I mean, the advice would remain and the guidance would certainly remain that by and large, you should wear your face covering when you're indoors with groups of other people who aren't your friends and family. And I think that advice has remained unchanged from the very beginning. Okay, so but it's it's not the law as such. It's it's advice stroke guidance. No, it is it is the law that you if you're an enclosed space to which the okay. public has access. But what I'm saying is the guidance has always remained unchanged that you should wear a face covering inside. Okay, no problem. My last question quickly is in relation to COVID vaccine passports, and I'm particularly interested in what, what's happening with those Irish passport holders who live in Northern Ireland who want to travel. Um, I'll maybe take that, Chair, but only to say, Paula, that, uh, you know, unfortunately we're, we're focusing on the restriction regulations here today. I don't think anybody on our panel is involved in the travel aspects, uh, and, and I'm afraid we wouldn't be able to answer that, but we could, of course, take that away and reply to committee afterwards. No, I appreciate that because I think that as we get closer to the summer, more people are asking um, that question and seeing some snippets on the news about what's happening in the south and over in GB. And, and they're left wondering what's happening here. So appreciate your honesty there, Nigel, and any update you can provide the committee. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, thank you. Um, going then to Jerry Carroll. Go ahead, Jerry, please. Thanks, Chair. Thanks, Nigel. Uh, two questions. Uh, the first is around outdoor gatherings, and there's a limit of 500 people, obviously. Um, and can I just confirm that that is uh, that I'm, that that accounts for protests and demonstrations as well. Um, just a clarity on that, please. And the exempt exceptions, sorry, not exemptions, the exceptions that are listed, um, one of them is uh, lawful industrial action. I think that's up to 1,000 people are allowed to take part. Um, I presume that's on the back of the, um, the Hova strike where there was, a, um, I don't know, confusion or certainly there was uh, police kind of uh, coming down to the picket line and, and telling workers that they couldn't gather. Um, so just to clarify, is that where that's coming from? Um, 
Yeah, thanks, Jerry. Um, on the first point, yeah, the uh, the outdoor gatherings restrictions is for any outdoor gathering. So there's no, there's nothing specific in there about sort of protests. Um, if it's an organised protest, which it would, uh, which it would need to be, if you're going to exceed the um, the 30 people from outdoors, then obviously the organiser has a as a responsibility in terms of you know risk assessment and, and taking taking measures and so on. But but there's nothing there that restricts or limits that type of protest. On the question about um, the background to the industrial uh, action query, um, um, Minister Swan wrote to the first minister and deputy first minister on the 19th of May uh, after he'd been made aware by PSNI that. Um, members of Unite the Union had been uh, approached by police and advised they were acting on lawfully in terms of the COVID uh, regulations. Um, Minister Swan very keen to to see the right to pick it up held as a fundamental and a, and a workers' um, right. And, and whilst he was made aware that such a picket would have would have become lawful in any case with the changes coming in on the Monday on the twenty fourth of May. Uh, to allow for the larger numbers uh, uh, in gatherings. Uh, he was keen that, we, that that be addressed sooner if it could be. Um, so he asked that it be considered urgently at the executive meeting on the 20th of May. So the executive sub subsequently agreed to an exemption being made for lawful picketing. Um, and that amendment was made and came into force on the same day on the 20th of May um, at the time the regulations were made. So it effectively covered off any issues um, you know that day or over that weekend before before the uh, the changes in gatherings uh, came into force on the Monday yeah thanks because I was a, I was down at the picket line and, and supported the, the strike it was quite bizarre that workers were being targeted for being outdoors and spread apart and uh, wearing masks whereas when they're in the workplace uh, there was no police action or investigation as far as I'm aware in terms of their safety uh, but just one final point around fines I think there's been a bit of confusion over responsibility um, over the last year uh, I mean you know down there you've seen the, the police report uh, sorry the PPS report um, yesterday uh, to say not to prosecute people for the Black Lives Matter protests on, on June 6th and I think it was a long overdue and a correct decision. I mean, the report condemned, commended the uh, actions taken uh, in terms of um, reducing the spread of virus, ensuring people were socially distant, uh, wearing masks, uh, and, and obviously the important right people have to protest as they do the strike uh, against racism uh, and police violence. Uh, so there's obviously a renewed call, which I would support for the fines. Other parties have called this for the fines to be rescinded because the um the, you know the action taken was was deemed to be uh safe and and legitimate uh, so who ultimately has the power to rescind those things um as far as i'm aware uh, jerry and i can't i'm afraid i can't be definitive on this but i would imagine it was it would be the police um my understanding of the enforcement issues with any sort of fine or sorry any fixed penalty notice that's issued is that but, uh, it can be rescinded by uh, the authority that issues them. Uh, in relation to, uh, are you talking about fines actually being being uh, imposed by the court, or are we talking about fixed penalty notices? Well, the fixed penalty notices, yeah. I think the fixed penalty notices. I think the enforcing authority um, uh, can can rescind them. Okay, well, if we could just get confirmation on that, Nigel, because I appreciate. You know, you're saying it's your impression, but if we get a clarity, uh, a clarified response on that, and just to, just to be clear, 
it's your understanding that no ministers can intervene to uh, rescind those fines or to make a uh, an SR or to make a, a, a position that uh, makes these fines uh, null and void? Not, not that I'm aware. Not that I'm aware. Um, okay. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Jerry. Um, Jonathan. Thanks, Chair. And look, uh, I'll not detain as I know we are running over, but totally agree with the sentiments of yourself and indeed Paula regarding live music. I think the blanket ban there is not appropriate. I think it must be much more circumspect to, to individual uh, circumstances. Uh, point has been made by Paula in relation to uh, how that could happen in different settings. So I do think there needs to be a relook at that. Uh, give bearing in mind that that it is people's livelihoods also. Uh, I also uh, agree regarding our comments on church wearing and masks. I, th I think there's a wee bit of semantics going on here when people can get on a flight, wear a mask, but be in close contact as a plane inevitably is, but yet socially distanced spaced in a church uh, with very good ventilation uh, and still wearing masks, I don't think is, is appropriate or needed. So I, I would encourage also that to be looked at. I wanted to just ask in relation to the Irish Cup final uh, and the thousands uh, and the thousands of uh, spectators that were permitted. Uh, that was a bit of a learning experience. Could you could you maybe explain what lessons were learned because this may be a blueprint for how we go forward with events? Thank you. Uh, yes, Chair, if I could come in on that, please. Yeah, go ahead, Jim. Thank you. Yes. Um, yes, the Irish Cup final on the twenty-first of May was used as a as a learning event. Um, it's a diff slightly different format from that taken with the programme events pro um, in England and Wales in that it was, it's not a scientific research, it was more about logistics and operational issues. So we have, um, we're awaiting a final report on the, on the testing and how it went um, to come in, so we're, we're expecting that soon. The IFA has provided us with some information that we're looking at at the moment, so we're pulling that all together and we hope to provide a report on that that will give us some information on organizing larger events going forward. So that's work that is ongoing at the moment. Okay, and I would appreciate if the committee could get sight of that report once once commissioned, because it, it would be good and useful for informing our thinking going forward as well. Thank you. Certainly, thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. And finally, Alan, go ahead, Alan, please. Thank you, Chairman. Chairman, uh, Jonathan asked me a question for the Irish Cup final. Just, just put in record that uh, the supporters that attended that match were very much appreciative of the of the uh, being allowed to attend it, and certainly I look forward to seeing the the results coming back. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Alan. Okay, and um, thank you to our panel. I don't see any other indications from members. So thank you for, for coming along. And uh, again, just on behalf of the committee, to wish you all the very best personally, but also in the very important work and the very difficult decisions. And I'm conscious that while we're, we're, we're talking about and welcoming some return to some, uh, some normality, at the other side, we have, to, we have to keep a very, very cautious look at what's happening because this virus has no mercy in terms of in terms of its transmission. If it can spread and transmit, it will. And there is remains a substantial responsibility on us all to reduce that spread, to contain it. We've heard like not not only um, in relation to the very, very many deaths that have occurred in our community, but even the long COVID that we have discussed earlier in our meeting. So it's essential that we prevent as far as we can people from contracting this very, very dangerous virus. 
Okay, so thank you, thank you to all of our officials there, to Nigel, you and your, your entire team there this morning. We will go ahead now and, and consider each of the uh, each of the SRs in turn. But for now, thank you. Thank you, yeah. thank you, Chair. Thank you, members. Okay, so members, we will take each one of the SRs in turn then. So item nine is SR twenty twenty one forward slash one three zero. I refer you to the, a copy of the SR and the SL five letter at tab nine point two to 9.3 in your pack and to the clerk's memo at tab at 9.1. Can I remind members that this SR provides for a number of easements of the restrictions, including sport and hospitality. The examiner of statutory rules has no issues to raise in relation to this SR and the SR is subject to confirmatory resolution. Have members any further issues they wish to raise in relation to this SR? No, thank you then. Can I then ask members to agree formally that the Committee for Health has considered the Health Protection Coronavirus Restrictions Regulations 2021, Amendment Number 4, Regulations NA 2021, and recommends that it be confirmed by the Assembly. Are we agreed? Agreed. Thank you, members. Item 10 is SR 2021 forward slash 131. Refer members to a copy of the SR and the SL5 letter at tab 10.1 to tab 10.2 of your pack and to the clerk's memo at 9.1. Can I remind members that this SR requires members of the public to wear face coverings whilst inside an enclosed public area? The examiner of statutory rules has no issues to raise and the SR is subject to confirmatory resolution. Have members any further issues they wish to raise in relation to this SR? No, thank you, members. Can I therefore ask you to agree formally that the Committee for Health has considered the Health Protection Coronavirus Wearing of Face Coverings Amendment Number 2, Regulations 2021, and recommends that it be confirmed by the Assembly. Are we agreed? Agreed. Thank you, members. So the additional agenda item then is a it's I refer members to tab 15 of your table papers. And this is SR 2021 forward slash 141. I'd like to remind members that this SR places restrictions on indoor sporting events subject to risk assessment in certain cases and makes other technical changes. The examiner of statutory rules has not yet reported on this SR and the SR is subject to the confirmatory resolution process. Have members any further issues they wish to raise in relation to that SR? No, thank you, members. Can I therefore ask members to agree formally that the Committee for Health has considered the Health Protection Coronavirus Restrictions Regulations 2021, Amendment Number 5, Regulations 2021, and subject to the report of the Examiner of Statutory Rules, recommends that it be confirmed by the Assembly. Are we agreed? Yep, agreed. Thank you, members. Okay, members, um, moving on then to correspondence, I'd like to draw your attention to a number of items there within our main correspondence. Item 11.2 is a departmental response to issues raised during the Minister's briefing on 4th of March. Do members have any uh, comments to make in relation to that correspondence? No, thank you. Uh, members content to note, therefore. Okay, thank you. Um, Item 11.4 is a departmental response to the committee's correspondence following the informal stakeholder meeting with cancer charities and support groups. 
Um, have members any comments in relation to that? No, thank you. Are members content to forward the response to all of those who attended that event? Yeah, members content, thank you. Um, so uh, item 11.7 is correspondence from the National Children's Bureau in relation to Our Minds, Our Future, which is a youth-led charter for mental health services here in the North. Have members any comments in relation to that item? No, thank you, members, therefore content to note. And a item 11.10 is a written submission on the Severe Fetal Impairment Abortion Amendment Bill from the Centre for Bioethical Reform, NI. Are members content that that be added to the committee's bill webpage and forwarded to the bill sponsor for comment? Are members agreed? Yep, members agreed. And can I just check, Clerk, in relation to, is is that, going back to that item point 11.2 on the departmental response on issues raised, is that the one which includes the issues raised by the committee in relation to the minutes of meetings on the oxygen supply. Okay, well, yeah, well, listen, I, I actually, I, I actually want to go back to that item because there was an indication within that that the Health and Social Care Board were considering whether it was in the public interest to release that information, and I, uh, I don't think that's satisfactory. And I would like to suggest that under the powers of the Stanton Order Forty Eight, uh, subparagraph two, which refers to Section Forty Four of the Nineteen Ninety Eight Act, um, and I think we should. Uh, flag that clerk to the to the department. I think that's that's an issue that the committee have asked for sight of, and I I don't think it's it's adequate that they, that it simply reverts now after an extended period of time of consideration when the minister was considering releasing it, and now it's moved on to HSCB. And um, I don't I don't honestly understand that, and I think we should flag that to the department. Are members content? Yeah, thank you. Okay, members, moving on into tabled correspondence. The table pack contains a further item that I would like to draw to your attention. Item 11.12 is a copy of a letter from Tuhans, who are solicitors representing Mr. O'Brien to the Minister of Health in relation to the terms of reference for the forthcoming inquiry into urology. We have been CC'd into that. Any comments, members? So, yes, members, sure. therefore, yeah, go ahead, Jonathan. No, sure. Happy to note from the committee's perspective, but uh, I would like to see a, an update from the department. Obviously, in his initial correspondence and, and announcing the, um, when the when the minister was before the committee, he did commit to the committee having an input in those terms of references. So I, I think that would be important uh, for us to get an update on that in, in due course. Yep, members content with that. Okay, thank you. So I refer members then to the draft forward work program and I appreciate uh, members were running quite late, but I'll refer members to the draft forward work program and ask the clerk to provide a brief update on the next few weeks and consideration of the bills that are in front of us there at the present. Clerk, would you just give us a wee update on that, please? Thanks, Chair. I'll, I'll, I'll be very quick and just um, go through it very quickly. It's just the, to give members a bit of an overview on the next few weeks in relation to consideration of um, the two bills that we have. Um, so next week we're due to get a further briefing from the department on the health and social care bill. Um, so this is the bill that gets rid of the, the board. So you'll see in today's papers, um, they've provided the briefing paper outlining um, the new proposed structures. So we'll be getting a briefing on that next week. Um, and the department will also be covering um, some of the issues that came up during evidence. Um, next week we're also due to get um, 
briefing from the Royal College of Midwives in relation to the SFIA bill. Um, we've also requested for the Northern Ireland Abortion and Contraception Task Group, um, and we're waiting to hear back from them. On the 17th of June, then, we have the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists confirmed for that date. We also have um, a session with Don't Screen Us Out and Down Syndrome Research confirmed. Um, we then have a third session with the Presbyterian Church, Care, Both Vibes Matter and Evangelical Alliance. Now, some of them haven't confirmed yet, but um, some have, so we're still waiting for some confirmation on that. The 24th of June then, we have Alliance for Choice um, coming to brief, along with Doctors for Choice NI and the ARC, um, and sorry, Alliance for Choice Dairy, um, some of which have confirmed and some we're still waiting. Then we're hoping then on either the 1st or possibly the 8th of July um, to have a briefing from the department and the trusts on the SFIA bill. Um, so that's where consideration of, of, of evidence over the next um, month or so. I did send an email out to members in relation to um, the slight change in recess dates and the members come back and indicated they were content to schedule a meeting on the 8th of July um, to ease pressure on the previous weeks because as of as I've sort of outlined there's a lot of briefings there but we then have other briefings lined up in the forward work program as well so if um, we have a meeting on the 8th of July that would ease a wee bit of pressure over the incoming weeks. Um, so I just want to give a very brief run through and I'm happy to send that out to members just to outline the, the upcoming sessions as well. Yeah. Okay, thank you. And if members could take a look at that meeting, I think it would be very helpful if we could have used the available time to, to do an additional meeting there. Also, members, at last week's meeting, the committee, we agreed that the clerk would look at terms of reference for a possible inquiry into waiting times. We are very conscious and there was different opinions within the committee in terms of how we how we we uh, move forward relating to waiting lists uh, rather than have an in-depth look back however i think members agreed that we would we would agree to look at what might add some value to that discussion so would members be content to schedule a short informal meeting to discuss that in more detail next week yeah yeah, yeah. okay thank you and members any other business then today yes mr. Carol, yes sorry i'll have carol there first uh, carol okay. go ahead yeah, so Chair, I, I raised with when Richard Pangeli, the, the Perm Sack of Health, was in front of the committee last week. I raised the issue of Professor Young thinking that he was employed by the, the department, but in turn, he's actually employed by the trust. So I would like to know where is lane management? Who's responsible for his lane management? Um, and what happens there? And you know, particularly in relation to any legal processes. What are those? And then the other thing is I have asked about the terms of reference of the Minister's Neurology Inquiry and we still haven't seen those either, which are due to the So thank you, Chair. Okay, so committee members content to, to seek further information on, on both of those. Thank you. And Alan, additional item? Uh, thank you, Chair. Uh, Chair, I understand that all the military personnel have now returned to base and I'd like to propose that the committee place on record the appreciation and thanks for the invaluable assistance provided by members of the military and not only our vaccination centres, but also in the Nightingale hospitals during the height of the COVID pandemic. Thank you. 
Well, I, I think I would be uh, much more comfortable with uh, thanking everyone who has contributed to this effort across a long number of months and across very many settings. And I think uh, I think it's appropriate that we would that we would thank those people. Um, I also think it's vital that we see our workforce reinforced to deliver the services that we need, whether that's uh, in terms of COVID or in terms of other in terms of other. Um, other services which are so badly uh, stretched at the minute, and, and I again emphasise the point that we're looking at hospitals at 103, 104 percent. Um, so I, 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 I'm reluctant to single out individual um, areas. I think every single, including those, including those people, I think every one of them deserves our thanks. To be quite honest. Yeah, and Mr. Chairman, I wouldn't disagree with you, and I think there will come a time when we will be able to thank everybody that has been involved, but just that the, the military have made a special effort to come in and help us, uh, requested by the entire executive. Uh, they have now returned to base. The uh, health ministers on record is thanking them. The first ministers on record is thanking them. And I think it's entirely appropriate that this committee uh, would uh, thank them as well. And I certainly have a proposal on the floor, Mr. Chairman. Uh, that we do thank them. And when the time comes to uh, thank and appreciate everyone else, uh, I certainly will be at the forefront of, of putting similar proposals on the floor, Mr. Chairman. Jonathan? Chair, sure, yeah. Uh, Jonathan and then Pam? Yeah, Chair, sure, I, I, look, I would concur. I, I think Alan's made a good point, and I think equally you have as well. I think there's a, a there's a plethora of organisations that have stepped up and, and really helped in difficult circumstances, and there will in due course be a time for the committee to thank uh, all of those people. So with what Alan has said there, I'm happy to support and second uh, his proposal to do that. And again, if that's a proposal on the table from yourself, that, that we look at means by which we can can reach out to all of those organisations that help, by all means, let's, let's, let's uh, put on record our thanks uh, for all of those that have helped. Thanks. Okay, um, I think I had Pam and then any other members who want in. Was it uh, Pam? Were you looking in there? Yes, thank you, Chair. Um, yep, yeah, just again to back um, Alan's proposal. Yeah, I think it's uh, the the proper thing to do, and giving the timing and uh, the fact that uh, they've now left to, to go home to wherever home is. I think it's really important that we do put on record our, our thanks to those personnel who uh, have given up so much and and. Everybody else is right as well. We're so we thank them. We are thankful. But I just think just where we are at this time, it is it is right and proper that we do actually single them out and, and thank them for their service uh, and for the the incredible work they have done uh, here in Northern Ireland. Okay. Any other comment, members or members content? Um, conscious members need to wait in meetings as well. Okay, members, thank you. So members are content with that. And uh, I will see you all. I only need to go through the date, time, place of next meeting. No other business from members, let me check. No. Uh, so date, time and place of next meeting will be on Thursday, 10th of June at 9.30 a.m. via video link. Our members uh, and uh, members content. And thank you all for that. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Okay, bye.